Hello, and welcome to On the Matter of Systems, a tabletop RPG show where every month your two hosts will critically engage with some RPG theory and then some RPG design. I am one of your hosts. I am BW. My other host is B. Hi, B. Hello. Is this the one where I'm the low energy person or am I still a high energy person? I'm always the low energy okay, person. Okay, let's fucking go. <laughs> let's fucking go. <laughs> I'm here to say that you can host a podcast and be depressed. <laughs> I'm here to prove it. Hello. The, the first in history. <laughs> mm-hmm. Never happened before, honestly. Um, so this is episode 3.2 of On the Matter of Systems. And that point two tells you that this is one of the episodes where we're going to talk about RPG design. Yeah. Yeah. We got a, we got a book in front of us. Yeah, specifically, we're going to talk about the game Aegon. So as a reminder, uh, last episode in 3.1, we read a bunch of blog posts by designer Ben Robbins, specifically about uh, his West Marches campaign, which started off as a way for him to figure out how to run games with a bunch of people who wanted to run games and has kind of spun off into its own whole entire ecosystem of West Marches style campaigns. Won't go into details about that. Please listen to the last episode. It was a ton of fun to record. True. But two of the sort of driving principles for West March's campaigns, Ben Robbins was very explicit about this, were sort of danger and competition. So as we started to go into this episode, I kind of wanted to try and choose a game that was at least interested in kind of like danger and competition sort of broadly. I also wanted to have us try and read a book, right? We've been reading, you know, like the the Wishlist and Dating.Sim were books, but they're pretty small, like 24, 25 pages. And so this is like a book, right? It's like 160 pages, like looks like a book. You could put it on your shelf. I, you have a hardcover of it, right? I do, yeah. Um, which which brings me to the, one of the other reasons I chose it, which is I wasn't even looking at the notes. So <laughs> look at me. I purchased a physical copy because I backed the Kickstarter, and I've like skimmed through it. But um, this, is, this is a really good excuse to actually read through Aegon. And then the final reason why I chose it, Aegon is sort of the first system in what what they have called the Paragon system. So this is similar to something like a Powered by the Apocalypse or um, a Forged in the Dark, uh, but it's pretty explicitly premised on the model um, of the open gaming license, right? Yeah. Is that what it was called? Yes. From third edition D&D. So the, the idea of the Paragon system is you can reskin it, you can make new character sheets, you can add stuff to it, but the core rules should be learned from the Aegon book. Yes. Which is different from Forge in the Dark and uh, Apoc- uh, Powered by the Apocalypse, because, and this is the thing, I just was listening to their AMA a little earlier, and they were talking about this, and I thought found it very interesting. Uh, they were basically like, yeah, if you want to make a Forge in the Dark game, you're looking at probably two, th- three years of development. If you want to make something in the Paragon system, you're looking at maybe a month. Because you don't have to rewrite rule, or you're you're explicitly not rewriting the rules if you're using their system. Um, you're just like I have an idea for a. Uh, I think Sean Nittner made a Paragon system game based on Transformers, and he was like, "Yeah, it came together in like four days." Yeah, there the, somebody did one. I, so when they released Aegon, I believe they tried to have at least a couple of the like sort of reskins. There was one that came out pretty early on. That's a. Uh like Fast and the Furious themed one. Yes. Um, Ride, Ride cool. or Die, I believe. It is, yes, Ride or Die is the title. 
So yeah, so I I kind of thought that would just be another interesting reason to read Aegon, totally. right? Which is like mechanics as platform. Um, yeah. See if we have any, you know, see if we have anything to say. Yeah. So <laughs> what is Aegon? Here's my high level pitch. So Aegon is a tabletop RPG that is written by John Harper and Sean Nittner. So the version we read is the second version, which was written by John and Sean. John Harper, probably best known for Blades in the Dark and Lasers and Feelings. Um, Sean Nittner has done a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, like kind of an impressive amount of stuff. Um, so runs the actual play YouTube channel, mm-hmm. which um, doesn't have the, uh, like it's doesn't seem like it's super popular compared to other actual play stuff, but they've done a ton of games. Yeah. I think it's a Twitch channel also. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a Twitch channel. I think there's four people who tend to GM and they kind of rotate through. And uh, I appreciated this. Sean Nittner is also the project manager at Evil Hat, um, which Evil Hat, I think Productions is the full name, but they're who produced Blades in the Dark. They put out uh, Aegon um, and they've worked with other designers. Uh, they seem like a seem like a decent company. Um, they, yeah, but there is a yeah. if you have read through any semi or very many semi large uh you know, indie role-playing games, there's a very strong chance you've read an Evil Hat game, I think is fair to say. I didn't know this until today when I was poking around, but they are apparently working on the uh, official version of Stewpot. Oh, yeah, that sounds right. Yes. Which is cool. Yeah. So the basic pitch of Aegon, think sort of heroes of Greek myth, right? Um, and sort of the the tales of, you know, grand heroes, etc. And uh, the idea of Aegon is that it's sort of an episodic kind of game. So there's a, a very clear sort of uh, path of play. You get your heroes together. They're on a boat. Um, they're going from island to island. At some point when you're going from island to island, there's ways that you choose a leader. So the group has a leader. You can then get to the island. These islands uh, are sort of the the prime kind of like combat uh, sort of scenario for the game or, or sort of like trial scenario. Um, so the islands, I think there's like maybe 12 to 15 in the book for you, um, as well as guidance about how to make the islands. But basically... The heroes arrive at the island. There's usually some sort of initial trial. There's then sort of a series of trials that they might need to get through all of or some of that lead up to sort of a big battle with like a big villain. The heroes then have to leave after that battle. So there's sort of mechanics around that. And then there's a downtime mechanic, which is the heroes back on the boat off on their way to the next island. Yes. The basic sort of combat mechanic is a dice pool mechanic, which we can get into in more detail later. It um, sure but that's fucking sort of, is a dice pool mechanic. <laughs> it really is. Super duper is a dice pool mechanic. Um, yeah, it really is. Uh, but yeah, uh, so that's that's the version that we will be talking about, which is the second version. Um, there was an original version of Aegon. So Aegon originally was uh, written by John Harper alone. It was put out in 20- 2006 uh, originally. Mm-hmm. It was much more focused on competition. Um, the uh, I think you put this in your notes, um, B, but I, I, I heard it a couple places as well, which is like, uh, how do... How, the original Aegon was basically like, how could we mechani- mechanize the relationship between like a, a game master, dungeon master sort of role and the players? Um, how could we mechanize if that was actually antagonistic, right? Not antagonistic in the way that some people talk about, which is like, you really shouldn't be trying to kill your party, blah, blah, blah. Well, how could we make it fun and actually design a game where that 
competition was built into the system itself. Yes. And additionally, competition between the players, because the original version of Aegon was about players competing for glory in a much more kind of cutthroat way. Uh, yeah, um, and, and that seemed to be true of the second edition up until like may- less than a year before they actually uh, released. Yes. So. <laughs> Correct. And so that's kind of the the final thing. So the, the, the version that we read, Kickstarter, I think launched in September of 2019, from what I could find, ran for sort of the typical, I think, two-ish months. Um, and then the version of Aegon that we will be talking about was officially released in March of 2020. The last note I'll say, just because it stuck out to me when I was reading the book, um, like one of the first names you see in terms of like, thanks and acknowledgement is Adam Koble. Fuck Adam Koble. Boo. I think is a, Boo. Uh, just sort of the blanket stance at this point uh, of On the Matter of Systems. Yep. I did look, at, for what it's worth, the the book was published basically literally right before the Adam Coble stuff blew up. So I think this is uh, an unfortunate quirk of the way time works and also how tabletop RPG books, you probably don't do a lot of multiple printings. So the things being sold are likely the originals. Um, yeah. Well, you also, like you said, you got this from the Kickstarter also, right? So Yeah. Um, and from everything I know about John Harper and Sean Nittner, which in the case of Sean Nittner is not a ton, I just started looking into him while reading this book, but they seem like stand-up people. They seem like they are not people who would platform Adam Goebel these days, um, for whatever that's worth. Uh, but I, because it stuck out to me that I saw his name immediately, I was like, well, okay, I should say something, probably. Um, and the, on the flip side of that, we, there's some wonderful names in, in these things also. We've got Avery Alder. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. We're clearly big fans of hers on this show. Austin Walker. Mm-hmm. We got McGay Baker. We got Vincent Baker. Um, Strash. Strass, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Strass Asimovic, I believe, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, Sage Latour is in there. Uh, Oh, nice. Uh, Strass is one of the rotating GMs on the actual play channel that Sean Nittner is involved in, by the way. He was also involved in the game of Agon that I watched on that channel that run by John Harper. um, Yeah. And was delightful. Cool. So that's the that's the pitch. Uh, That's what Agon is at a high level. Those are sort of why I chose it. Um, So I think we could just start talking about the game. And to do that, I'm going to say, hey, B. Hi. What'd you think of Agon? Hello. Um, Hi. I think... It's really cool, um, which is Tell me more. funny because it's super not my kind of game. And I, I, I was pleasantly surprised yeah. when I got your first <laughs> Discord message, and you were like, "This seems cool," because uh, I genuinely wasn't sure what you would think of it. Think of it as a game. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm like there's the there's a small amount of stylistic bias because the very first media property they uh, they mention is Xeno Warrior Princess, which I adore. Um, but like, I'm not a swords and sandals person. Um, I love Fritz Lieber and I've never even read the Fawford and the Grey Mouser series. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I literally don't actually, <laughs> but that's fine. We, that we can, um, there'll be one person who could theoretically know what I'm talking about. Anyway. Um, yeah, it's, it's not really my style of game in terms of, uh, genre. It's not really, I mean, I'm I'm here for an interesting dice pool, but like I feel like this like this like 160 page uh, game with like you know like that are it, 
I feel like there's a, a certain style of game that this fits into very clearly, in my brain at least, which is right. Like, the book is primarily primarily about one-shots, and there's like a weird advancement sort of campaign system bolted onto it um, that makes the one-shot stuff feel even weirder, because there's like a whole balancing thing you have to do. Like, that's that's just like how I, re- I have read a number of books, being like, well... I'm going to play this as a one shot. So there's all this like balance around, you know, your name dice advancing based on certain glory, (laughs) like levels and stuff like that, where I'm like, I think this game for my purposes would probably be balanced better without the campaign stuff at all, or needs another 30 pages, like really hitting on cool um, advancement stuff. Um, And, uh, usually they come away from those books being like, this is, you know, this is just a thing that I've read or whatever. Like, this is a, there's a neat idea or here, in here or two, and I'll, um, you know, I will, I will <laughs> take that and house rule it into something else. Um, but I came out of this being like, I kind of want to play this game. Uh, <laughs> like, I kind of want to get a group together and play this game. Um, despite other things, like, you know, I'm a very, very loose GM in many ways, and this game is not, oriented toward like the GM coming up with a lot of stuff. A lot of it's just in the book and you're just referencing it and sort of like adjudicating. Um which yeah. is I think it's done really well here in a way where I'm like I don't I don't normally want to do this, but I want to try it in this system specifically. Yeah, I I it's I was very impressed with it as a whole. And I think also very impressed with it as uh, I mean, a, a platform for, I guess, lack of a better word, sure. right? Like the Paragon system for a lot of similar reasons of like, I, I, the setting doesn't really interest me at all. Like I, 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 I had a Greek myth phase as a kid because I think a lot of people did. Sure. But um, like, I just don't care about it now. I, I don't care about most of their sort of cultural touchstones, to be perfectly honest. I am, for instance, not a Xena fan. Um. No, you just haven't watched it. <laughs> That's absolutely not true. Actually, um, I have, in fact, watched a decent amount of it. And I did There's not a good think. chance you've watched more than I have. Honestly, I've basically only seen the first season. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I, I also kind of came away being like, it, not even like I want to play Aegon necessarily, but like I, I think that it, I would love to look at you know some of the reskins because. For me, the actual, like, flavor I just don't care about. But I think there's a lot of really clever stuff in here. I think specifically, like, the Strife player. So uh, to try and get some of the proper nouns out there. Yeah. So the 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 basic setup for Aegon in terms of roles at the table are you have your hero players, um, which are sort of the, the, you know, the PCs in a like a D&D kind of focused way mm-hmm. uh, of talking about it. And then your dungeon master is the strife player or your game master is the strife player. Yes. And I thought it was really interesting. I did not know this before I started, but I thought it was really interesting, for instance, how the strife player actually kind of mimics a lot of what Ben Robbins was suggesting about how you should act as a dungeon master in a West Marches campaign. Totally, yeah. Um, which I think we can get into uh, just for the listener. Uh, we've talked about this, but I think we're kind of just going to sort of step through the book. Not touch on every single thing, obviously, but I think the book's laid out pretty well. Um, yeah, totally. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of information, and like 
my first time reading through the book, I was like, God, this is fucking fiddly. <laughs> um, and I've now probably oh, yeah. read through the, the whole thing like four times or so. And I actually think it's far less fiddly than it seems at first. Yes. I will I will also just to add on to what I was saying there, um, in in context of what you just said, uh I I do not think I could run this game right now. Like I mm-hmm. have I read through the whole book. I I picked I looked at a couple of other things and I listened to three different actual plays. I think I have an, a basic understanding of it, of it as a system, um, not a basic understanding, a pretty decent understanding of it as a system as, you know, mechanics that touch each other and, and work towards certain goals. Um, but like, if you were to ask me, if you were just like, Hey, I got, a, I got a handful of dice right here. I would be like, okay, we can play, but I'm going to be consulting this book a lot <laughs> and I'm going to miss, yeah. I'm going to re- like not remember some things, nothing probably super critical, but there's going to be some like, oh, fuck up wrong glory or fate, definitely. Um, <laughs> at, yeah, at certain it, points. and that's, prob- that's probably the stuff that I still feel even after multiple set like sessions of reading through this. Some of, some of the, especially like you were saying, I, th- I think especially some of the mechanics around playing this as a campaign as opposed to a one shot yeah. are the kind of thing that probably feel a lot more natural once you're playing than it is to just read about them. Cause like I was thinking about this just in terms of the book design, right? Which is what you do on an Island is multiple trials and then one or more battles Mm -hmm. that is given the same amount roughly of like page time as the like legacy, how you get more uh, or like how you sort of add to sort of your your hero's power when really you're going to be doing a lot of the like ongoing stuff once during downtime and most of the rest of your time is going to be putting together dice pools and trials and whatever so yes anyway all of that to say why don't we start walking through the book a little bit um yeah i'm into that so uh basically the the first the first chapter is kind of like hey here's the pitch right Here's who you are. Here's kind of like some of the big proper nouns in terms of, you know, m- currency or mechanics. And then the first thing that I was thinking might be worth talking about is that there's a section in this first part, which is like, <laughs> what are the cultural touchstones, right? This is where Xena comes up. Yes. Um, uh, well, Xena comes up before the touchstones come up, which is interesting to me. Yes, that is true. Like, So basically there's like a section which is... Essentially saying, listen, we're inspired by ancient Greek myth and legend. You don't have to, you don't, you can play a little fast and loose. Here are some of the t- cultural touchstones. And then it goes through even more cultural t- touchstones. But you, you had brought up uh, something which I, I did think was interesting, which is like Xena is basically the very first sort of media property that I think is mentioned. Yeah. Um, I, do you want to introduce that thought or that question? Yeah, I'm just I just scrolled to the page in my in my PDF, um, and it specifically says like, think of your favorite swords and sandals media: Xena, Warrior Princess, Clash of the Titans, or the themes the scenes on whatever the fuck in Wonder Woman. Um, and then the end of that is like, if you want to base your characters on current epic heroes like Letty, Dom, and Hobbs from the Fast and the Furious movies, go for it. Um, and I, you know, my immediate reaction to that was like, hey, I like I like the Xena. Um, I don't care about Wonder Woman and Fast and the Furious seems cool. I don't really, didn't really watch it a bunch. Um, but my immediate thought was, um, this is, you're, you're clearly doing the Odyssey here, y'all. Like, the, 
the structure of Xena Warrior Princess is a sort of monster of the week show often, but like, I mean, there's a very prominent boat at the end of season one, I guess, and there's some other stuff that comes up later, but like, th- you're doing the Odyssey, why don't you say the Odyssey? <laughs> um, and it kind of just made me start wondering, like, how, I don't know, I, I, I've never really thought a ton about how we feel or how I feel about the use of, like, media shorthand in games in general. Um, do you, do you, have you had, like, that thought before? I know it's, like, a big thing in Apocalypse World stuff. It is, it is, yeah. I mean, uh, I've thought about this a little bit. I, I'll be honest, most of the way I think about this is in terms of the... I, I don't, I mean, you might know this about me, but the listeners, I don't know that there's any reason they would. I, like, I don't actually watch a lot of, like, popular media, and I don't mean that as, like, ooh, because I'm only interested in weird shit, but, like... You are only just, interested in weird shit. <laughs> I mean, I am only interested in weird shit, but I come by very honestly. Yes. Um, yes. It's not posturing. But it's also just that, like, I, for instance, the last, I don't even know at this point, probably decade of my life, it hasn't been a fully, a full 10 years, probably, but I've, like, really started struggling with fiction just like personally like it's hard for me to read a novel um Mm -hmm. i don't watch a lot of like scripted tv shows these days um or much tv at all so for me often what ends up happening is there are these touchstones where i'll be like oh sure and then i just have to google it and then try (laughs) and like figure out right because i just like i knew xena i know xena um (laughs) I've read. You, think, you know and hate Xena Warrior Princess. <laughs> okay, I don't hate it. It's just not, it's just ambivalent. Uh, I've read a lot of the Odyssey. I don't actually remember if I finished it. But like, there's a bunch of this stuff that I just haven't seen uh, on this list, right? So, The Iliad and the Odyssey, Song of Achilles and Circe, which are two novels that came out not too long ago, I think. Yeah, they. I mean, they're still flying off the shelves at the bookstore yeah. that I work at. Um, but then like the fast and the furious being there is really interesting to me because I'm like, what do you want me to take from that one? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Like, uh, and so I end up not finding most of these kinds of touchdowns super helpful because they're either confusing or I, my brain tries to like figure out what the connecting tissue is hades um, by Supergiant being there is was the one for me that i was like yeah i literally do not see this i do not get why this isn't here a hundred percent right because like i guess because of like the combat maybe but like so much of what people love I me mean, what i loved about hades i n- never beat it because i'm terrible at video games I but like because i'm great I, at everything <laughs> that's true yeah absolutely uh but like my favorite part of hades was coming back right after mm-hmm. a failed run and getting more of that delicious delicious story and figuring out which one of the gods i was going to try and sleep with like it's this that is the thing about that game yeah and like there's just like there's really not any of that like in the the game as book right yes um and yeah so this is like kind of my question or my opening or like the opening question for me right is like part of your answer sounds to me like um (laughs) these sort of touchstone heavy games that is i feel like been the style since apocalypse world 
at least as, as far as my historical knowledge goes, they often have the same effect on me where I'm either just like, I'm just skimming past this because this is a list of shit I do not know and do not care about. Or I'm actively being taken out of the book and being like, shit, that seems like a like, <laughs> like a foundational touchstone to this. And if I don't know anything about this, like fucking 13 season media property i guess i just don't understand this book anymore so it's a weird thing where because like i get the the theory behind it right like you mention things that are in the popular zeitgeist that could like push people to better like relate to the the thing that you're trying to make but I find so often it does the exact opposite for me um, that I was just like, this is so weird. It's such a weird thing. And then to like <laughs> say even more, like I, I did find, you know, and I sent to you the um, like a 26 page version of uh, the, the 2006 Agon that has a quote from the Odyssey in it before the book starts. Yeah. So, so like maybe that was like an intentional thing on their design choice because you know if they're moving away from this is a hardcore role-playing game about conflict and returning home or whatever to like this is a bit more like this you know edition is a lot more goofy like maybe it makes sense to put the classics a little farther down than the big sword and sandal stuff but yeah it's still confusing to me (laughs) yeah i mean in general i yeah like i said uh like i just don't i find them either confusing or not super helpful i i will say one of the other things about the original aegon that really stuck out to me was specifically about aegon like both the name but also it's like role or whatever mm-hmm. in the original game i'm so i'm gonna read this is from page 13 of this pdf that we will link in the notes but in Aegon, no one gets anything, quote, for free. To win an advantage or accomplish a task, the player or antagonist must roll a victory on the dice. Nothing ever happens simply because it should or it makes sense. <laughs> Every task is an Aegon that must be won. The dice speak and their results are binding for everyone. For example, the antagonist isn't just isn't allowed to just say that the heroes are ambushed from the darkness, even if that is what would happen. Instead, the antagonist must win a victory in a contest against the heroes. Like, it was such a different game in terms of tone. I um, The enthusiasm I feel toward this edition of Aegon is, uh, is very mirrored, I think. Uh, you know, it's, re- it's, not, it's not the opposite, but it's reversed, right? I'm like, yeah. mm-hmm. the first edition Aegon sounds like a really fascinating book to read that I would never in my fucking life <laughs> want to play. A hundred percent. But it, it it sort of does make sense to me, for instance, why the Odyssey is is the is the like the first touchstone because the original Aegon is like uh, much more serious, and so I I understand why Xena would be the sort of first touchstone for the second version, which is a lot less about the heroes themselves struggling against each other, right? Yeah, there it's still a competitive game, both in terms of against the Strive player and in terms of like trying to be better or to I think first among equals is the way that like Sean Nittner put it in one of the things I listened to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, significantly less. It seems like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Okay, cool. 
Any other thoughts on any other touchstone? I, I don't think there's anything else in the first section that I'm like dying to talk about. I will oh. say I, I hadn't had this thought before, but when I was saying, you know, I, in my mind, Apocalypse World is the is the game that like sort of introduces this thing of just being like, he, we're just going to give you a list of stuff we're inspired by, um, to like get you in the right mood or whatever. But also, uh, that's that's just what Dungeons and Dragons is, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. I'm going to rip off Tolkien and. Again, Fritz Lieber specifically, Fawford and the Grey Master is like a huge influence on Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and uh, uh, that, you know, old Lovecraft and uh, turn of the century authors and illustrators and stuff like that, that Gygax and, and Arneson were just like, we like that. We're going to take it. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. So it's so referencing things is clearly in the DNA of tabletop role playing games. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird how it how it does it. Anyway, should we talk about dice? Maybe dice are weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was wondering if we want to talk about that now or if we want to talk about uh, like making your hero first. But it doesn't really matter. I, um, uh, I don't. I do. <laughs> you. We should talk about the hero stuff because it's still. Um, you you mentioned earlier that we should uh, we, we should get some of the proper nouns out of the way and motherfucker mm-hmm. if there aren't some proper nouns in this hero creation <laughs> yeah that's kind of what I was thinking <laughs> um, is let's get to some of the proper nouns because I think that'll also help when we talk I mean the the place to talk about our the dice is going to be when we talk about sort of contests and battles or trials and battles or whatever um but yeah so the the second the second chapter is all about creating a hero and uh as my co-host pointed out holy shit are there a lot of proper proper nouns here (laughs) but the basic idea is when you create a hero uh you give them an epithet um so this should be something right some of the examples are like hot-headed lithe-limbed the one from the book that I find absolutely fascinating is Many Wade. I I don't even know how I would use that. Forge Master is pretty good. Forge Master is pretty good. But the, the basic idea is it's an epithet, right? And so you'll create a name after that. Um, and you get a die for your epithet. You also get a die for your name. Um, these dies can be a D6 up to a D12, 12. 12, I yeah. think. Yeah. That's the, um, so this game uses D4, D6, D8, and D12, and D10, yeah. obviously, but no um, D20s, no D2s. Yeah, no D20s ever. <laughs> How dare they? Um, but yeah, so you, you when you are doing the contests with the dice that we will talk about in the future, you, you as a player are going to construct your pool based on your epithet, based on your name, and then you're supposed to pick a lineage, so this is some sort of significant ancestor or like people. So at this point, right, we're only three things in and you already have your character is great hunter. What's a name? What is what are names? How can I come up with a name? Uh, this is Cody. great. Great hunter. Cody. I was Scion of you know mars or whatever that's one of the roman gods i think so Uh, athena um (laughs) so yeah so you basically you you already you have an epithet you have your name you have your lineage so who you're a scion of and then you choose a favored domain there are four domains in this game arts and oration 
blood and valor, craft and reason, or resolve and spirit. I think those names are like pretty straightforward, kind of what they cover in terms of the domains. But basically, your favorite domain started a D8. So this is like a pretty hefty, good die to be able to add to your pool. And uh, you will use those domains in trials and battles and stuff. You then choose Sorry, the just primary. To, just to make it clear yeah, again, please. trials and battles are also proper nouns in this. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Sorry. Trials and battles are, in fact, proper nouns. Um, so uh, you have epithet, you have name, you have who you're the scion of, you have your favorite domain, and then you also pick your the primary god from which your hero will draw divine favor. Um, divine favor, again, is like another resource that you can use to like give you advantage, etc. There's a, he- a helpful guide to all of the gods and what they kind of focus on. And then, you know, some sort of thing about your style. I The style stuff I thought was kind of interesting, specifically because the, Aegon is like pretty uninterested in like your weapons as sort of their own mechanic. It seems to be mostly aesthetic in Aegon. Completely, yeah. Like, basically, the assumption should be you are a hero and you are traveling, so you should have some sort of, like, you should have an array of, like, things to choose from. But basically, you can, like, define it as, like, I am, what was I? I was Great Hunter Cody, Scion of Athena, and, uh, you know... I look cool uh, <laughs> and I like to, I like to use spears or whatever, which I just thought, I thought was interesting. There's, there really is no, the, your sort of armor and weapons don't really play much of a mechanical role from what I could tell. Yeah. So in the book, that's absolutely true. I will say um, the two things I liked hearing from the, some of the actual plays I was listening to. I liked how Sean Nittner specifically on the crit show, um, the way he asks people to define their look is, but he's like, imagine there's like 200 people like cresting a hill. What your style is like, what would make you recognizable in that group of 200 people? So you're you're kind of oh. painting with a broad brush on that one. Yeah, that's one. cool. Um, and then I will say in the in the actual uh, the actual play channel um, thing I listened to, there was a moment in which like. Some one of the characters like opened a portal to Hades, and they like dipped some weapons into the river Styx, and those, and then John Harper, who was playing the Strife player, was like, "Yeah, we'll add those to your, you know, inventory basically as like a D10 item." Um, so there are ways to oh, mechanize cool. weapons, but it sounds yeah. like it's more fiction first kind of weapon use than a, uh, you know. Here's the here's the table of, you know, 70 different kinds of swords, and here's the, the gold piece cost for each of them uh, sort of thing. Yeah, that's cool. I, I don't think I made it that far in the actual play one. It's, pre- um, it's like part three of four. So Okay, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, like, uh, that makes a lot of sense, actually, then, that you, you could essentially use some of your weapons uh, to get an advantage, which is another thing we can talk about at some point but um cool so that's kind of yeah that's like the primary stuff for your character right so epithet name lineage and your favorite domain who your honored god is style and then once everybody has created their characters you form bonds with each other and i really think the bond system is pretty cool 
Is it? I don't remember it being particularly deep. Is there more to it than I'm remembering? It's not all that deep, I guess. Uh, but like, so for instance, um, the th- when you here we go when you give somebody a bond or, or when you have a bond with somebody, you can basically spend those bonds right when you're competing in a trial or a battle. Again, capital T, capital B, these <laughs> yes. are proper nouns. Yes. Um, we will get there when we get to the dice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and specifically, you can ask them to do one of three things, which this is the part that I thought was kind of interesting. So you can have a bond with fellow players, right, with other heroes. You can also have bonds with uh, gods. Yes. Um, so when you're creating your heroes, one of the things you can decide is I I will be either a direct descendant of other humans, which means you're a mortal hero. Um, so you get to record two bonds with each other hero in your party, or you could be a demigod as your sort of like hero character, which means that you have one bond with each other hero, but you have an extra bond with whoever the god is. And so when you want to spend those bonds... Yeah, and mechanically speaking, bonds are basically a form of currency. Um, they are a thing that you have until you use them and then they're gone, and then you can get get more throughout play. Correct. You, in fact, get more basically at the end of each island during the downtime section. Um, and I think there are other ways. But basically, the three things you can do are when you spend a bond, ask for one of the following. I'm quoting from my copied notes, so I apologize. I don't know the page number. But uh, you can ask for you, another hero to bolster you. Um, so your companion then describes how they assist your action in a contest and gives you a copy of their name die. So again, your epithet and your name all have a die associated with them. (laughs) And so if you want to spend a bond and ask for help, somebody can give you a copy of their name die and that goes in your pool. Uh, the second thing you can ask for when you spend a bond is to have somebody block harm for you. So then they have to say how they defend you and the harm is avoided, meaning they don't suffer it either. So... Um, you can spend a bond and say, hey, eagle-eyed Nadia, I would love for you to block this harm for me. And if the player who is playing eagle-eyed Nadia is like, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. Nadia would do that. Then you can spend that bond and nobody takes any harm. Yes. Harm is also another Very proper confusing. noun <laughs> in this in this thing. It is basically... You take harm and you mark a thing called pathos, and it's sort of like a stress mechanic-ish in Blades in the Dark. Uh, But the third thing you can ask for, and this was the one I thought was really interesting in Bonds, was you can ask somebody to follow your lead. So you can spend a bond specifically with the leader of the group, which is a role that we haven't talked about yet, and basically sway the leader to your idea or plan, so you're you're leaning on sort of the friendship or the bond you formed with your fellow hero, etc. You can also spend more than one bond in a single role, like in a single contest role. Mm-hmm. So the actual like it's very simple on the face of it, right? When you you spend a bond, you kind of talk or when you create a bond, you sort of talk a little bit about, you know, what that bond is and you can then use them to give you advantage, essentially. Um, but I specifically thought it was pretty interesting that, like, there's three pretty, like, you know, defined ways that you can spend those bonds. Um, and I thought sort of the interaction with the leader role, which is just another thing I found really interesting mm-hmm. in the game, I thought was really cool. Uh, that's, that's really all I had. I just thought it was neat. I thought I... 
uh, I feel like sometimes people, uh, people really like bonds. I think they're really clever, right? Um, I think if you're a person who listens to, for instance, actual play podcasts, if you listen to Friends at the Table, like that's a thing or from early on that they were kind of like throwing in on top of other stuff. And I just thought they did it, like, I thought John and Harper and Sean Nittner did a good job of, like, making it really clear what it is and how they're useful, but also putting, like, you know, just a little bit of guidance around, like, what kinds of things you could ask for. Yeah, so I will say, uh, this is on page 56 of the PDF that I have, at least. And yeah, it's, I was thinking about this as I was uh, taking my, my my walk today. I think this is a, this is a useful time to maybe, to... <laughs> <laughs> to take a step back and and ask this question that is like halfway a joke. Um, BW, you and I have read um, System Does Matter for the very first episode of this show, um, and can, we, we I have can confirm we have we, we did do that. We have we have had some thoughts on it and talked through some of them throughout the subsequent episodes. I think both of our positions on that uh, little manifesto are you know fairly out in the open i think between us at this point um so i say that all to preface one of the things that i was trying to think through is whether i think what what gns this game is whether this is a gamist system or a, a system that facilitates gamist play narrativist play or simulationist play do you have like a gut reaction to that? Do you do you have like a feeling for like what kind of play this is like going for? It's interesting because it, I mean it, it feels very strongly not simulationist for sure. Yes, I agree with that. Yes, um, and it kind of feels like it's trying to do a bit of both gamisty interests and narrativesty narrativesty interests. Um. But maybe maybe leaning a little more game, gamist. That's possibly? that's kind of where I landed. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, "There's actually very little narrative, like focus directly in the book, at least in in my mind, at least. It's like, and maybe this is also just having listened to a few actual plays and being like, <laughs> they didn't really tell very interesting stories. They had a really good time." rolling some dice and competing with one another. Um, like maybe that changes over a campaign rather than a one shot, like where you, you get more um, invested in the particular characters, but like the way that trials work and the way that the, the game sort of indicates you as a strife player to like, you like reveal, what is it? The loop? It's like reveal, ask, adjudicate or something like that. Um, yeah, I think I yeah, I think it's ask, reveal, judge. Um, reveal, ask, judge. I just reveal, found ask, it. Judge, yeah. yeah. Um it, and it's it explicitly says like it's a pretty fast-paced game. Like you're not sitting around doing like large sweeping, you know, drone shots of this island as you come in and stuff like that unless you like unless your GM happens to be that kind of a GM. I mean, there is a I think there's like a literal line in the in the section you're you're referencing, in which um, John Harper and Sean Nittner are giving advice to the Strife player, I mean, literally one of the it's just written here: things to avoid. The first bullet point is don't try to tell a story yes. to the other players, <laughs> which is yeah, is super interesting. I, I think that it absolutely 
it feels in some ways the paragon system feels like a like the reason why i would maybe lean narrativisty like narrativist a little bit is like it almost feels like it's a gamist approach to essentially going listen just roll some dice to figure out what happens and then you can kind of like relax and like describe however much you want or however little you want to yeah which is is interesting because i do agree like for the most part it does seem like it would be this would be a very fast-paced game uh unless you had a bunch of people at the table who wanted to you know go into detail describing things but i mean and then i was thinking about it also in those terms of like this the way that conversation and i'm i'm getting ahead of our of myself a little bit here but like we'll get we'll get to this in a second but i just want to quickly say like the way that dice rolling work also has very specific um or like the trials and battles works more accurately is like it has very specific instructions around when and who gets to uh, like describe what's going on, which to me suggests that you're specifically not supposed to do a lot of setup. But uh, then again, you know, games differ by the table and everything. Um, and also, I wanted to just uh, just realizing how silly it was of me to do this right here because I was like, we just were going through a very specific set of proper nouns and like uh, very abstract concepts. If you have not read this book, you know, like. Make your epithet, uh, give your name a dice, uh, <laughs> make bonds yeah. to bolster you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, what if I reintroduce three other proper nouns? But the, the point was to be like, if this sounds wildly crunchy in the way we're describing it, I think that's partly because uh, this game pr- pr- front loads a lot of crunchy shit. 100%. Um, and that was part of the reason I had to like go back and reread the first half after I read it the first time because I was like, okay, now I like have some idea of the larger picture, <laughs> and I'm not just like, the fuck is a name dice, and why do they keep saying that? <laughs> um, well, so this is why I, and I don't know if you did this, but I, I tried to put together a little like reading guide because I, I ran into this this problem right where you. So, like, we are, we've been talking through, like, the creating a hero, right? Second chapter in the entire book. Yeah. You you go through one, two, three, four, five more chapters before you get to the very first place where the islands are. And, like, for me, I realized, I like, I genuinely just did not understand what this game was <laughs> five chapters in because I hadn't looked at an island yet. Yeah. And, like... The islands really are, like, the core of helping you understand, oh, this is what the game actually looks like. Okay. Yes. Um, Which is not to say that they did not, like, I think they did a really good job of putting this book together. I think it's just a lot of information, basically. Yes. I I agree. I agree completely. Yes. (laughs) uh, Which, I mean, I think we could just basically, so the the very last thing that I was going to bring up in the creating a hero section um, in the origin chapter was just the, the leadership thing. So part, part of the core game loop is finding somebody who can be the leader of the hero group. 
This is done with a contest, which we will talk about in roughly 45 seconds. Um, yeah, definitely. Con- definitely. We're going to get through this in 45 seconds. Like, Absolutely we get through we everything. Are. Uh-huh. Go on. Uh-huh. Uh, so. <laughs> start w- speed talking. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I would have. You've taken 20 seconds of my time telling me I won't get to it. Uh-huh. Um, so you do it through a contest. Basically, all of the heroes kind of compete, right? Um, The Strife player puts something in front of them while they're on the boat heading to the first island. Interestingly, the hero who who does the best in the contest, what they get is the right to choose who will be the leader. Yes. Um, Which I think is a very clever... It's the right choice also. That's the the right way to do a game like this. (laughs) 100%, right? And I think especially if you think about the older version of Aegon... I think it's a fun wrinkle, right? And it helps hammer home that you're competing because you're heroes and you want to do the best, but also you're a group who's working together to go from island to island and to find your way back home. Um, Yes. And what the leader does is basically they're responsible for interpreting the signs. So once you get to an island, one of the very first things that happen is there are signs from the gods. And the leader also basically makes sort of the final call of like, okay, this is this is how we're actually going to tackle this trial. So if there's dissension among the group, the leader is the person who gets to make that final call, which I think is interesting. I think that's like a I think it's I think there's a lot of interesting stuff just in this very small thing, right? The the totally. fact that you're you're earning the right, you're competing to earn the right to choose the leader is super fascinating. The fact that the leader is uh, responsible for the signs from the gods, which is a thing that could feel like really abstract for sure. But I think there's a bunch of examples in the book that I think make it really clear how like, oh, the, interpreting the science could go very differently depending on who the leader is, right? Which I think is cool. Uh, and then the leadership thing is not permanent. It changes between islands or it could change between islands. There's a contest every time you leave an island and go to the next one. I didn't have t- a ton of else to say about the, the leader at this point, but that I just kind of want to introduce it. I will also just very quickly say like this is... Uh, this is another instance of uh, a thing I haven't we haven't explicitly stated, I guess, but like um, this is a really good example of the way in which um, Harper and Nittner like really fucking figured out how to make this game move fast, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this is you know for all the mechanical stuff that it is, what what it's doing structurally in the book is basically being like. At the end of character creation, you are immediately going to engage with the primary mechanic of this, the primary mechanic of this game, and you're going to learn it. And then we can just roll right into the fucking island and like we will have figured out the primary way in which the hero players are going to be engaging with like the mechanisms of the game. Um, Yeah. In a very low stakes way, but immediately after you have created your characters. Yeah, it's I think it's really, really smart. I think it's super clever. So why don't we talk about the primary mechanic of the game? So the next chapter is trials. So there are two types of trials. And this is basically how do you handle combat, broadly speaking. So there are two types of trials. There are contests, right? And there are battles. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So uh, I think the easiest way to explain this and the fastest is probably just to tie it back to how islands are set up. So the basic structure of an island is you get to an island, the leader sees signs from the gods, so the strife player will read out those signs, and then all islands have some sort of initial trial. Um, 
some sort of initial thing they have to do. Uh, on some of the earlier ones, it tends to be sort of a, a combat contest. But basically, the way a contest works applies to everything. It could apply to, if you remember the four domains uh, that I mentioned earlier, arts and oration, blood and valor, craft and reason, or resolve and spirit. You would use the same contest sort of structure, whether you were having some sort of like a speech competition, right? And focusing on the arts and oration domain, or whether you are hitting each other with swords, focusing on the blood and valor, uh, etc. Right. You could be, you know, praying to your God for guidance. That's a, that's probably a resolve in spirit sort of thing. Exactly. Um, in, a yep. com- in a competitive prayer way. <laughs> um. Contests in this game are, are sort of smaller or not necessarily smaller, right? But you're going to do probably two to three um, kind of contesty things before you would hit on kind of the final battle on an island. So... How does a contest work? Do you want to try and explain this? Do you want me to try and explain this? I have a question, actually, since you are an owner of a, you are the owner of a physical copy of this. Um, I saw in some, at least on Roll Twenty, when the in the actual play playthrough, um, John Harper like put out trial cards. Did did the physical copy of the game come with like a? like the battle map and and cards and anything like that? Or is that just like a roll 20 module or thing? I think that must just be a roll 20 thing. I, if I, if I did get those, I have lost them. Uh, I, all I have is the book as far as I'm aware. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, islands, islands, islands are weird. Um, (laughs) uh, can I, can I explain how conflicts work? Um, yeah, you, basically something has to happen that, uh, it require, it would require a conflict to come up. Um, so this is not a, like, you don't have to roll, you know, you're not rolling, uh, perception checks in this game ever. You're not, you know, like rolling to, uh, like find out what's happening. It's only when there is a, like an, an opponent whether that opponent is, uh, you know, a, a corrupt ruler or a uh, bad windstorm or whatever. Um, and the strifeful player will call for them. Um, the way that they work is... I'm doing this... I'm trying to do this from memory. Mm-hmm. First things first. The strife player will roll um, a pool of dice depending on the, the, um, the conflict... The person that they are in con- or the thing that they are in conflict with. Um, so this- yeah, the the first step is the strife player determines which of the four domains sort of apply based on what okay. the actual contest yes. is. And the, yes, right. I forget this because it's a little weirder in the battle thing. Yes, um, So the strife player chooses the domain. Uh, they roll all their dice pool of whatever this. Um, this element of conflict is, uh, and they basically take the highest dice they roll. Um, so theoretically, let's say it's a, let's call it a simple blood and valor competition. The strife player has put a uh, troll in front of them. The troll is going to roll actually very similar to how the people would, right? The troll would, if it is like a, 
uh, you know, a thing that has an epithet, a name, and a, and a lineage. The lineage is probably not going to be there because it's a random troll, but maybe it is, like, the troll that's been terrorizing this island. So it's, like, you know, uh, wild-eyed grog. Uh, so it's got, you know, a D8 for the epithet, a D6 for the name, and... Uh, What's the other thing that I'm missing here? Uh, it, it, so then the, the only other thing would be adding bonus dice. So it's it's a, a die for the name, a die for the epithet. Um, and then yes. for bonus dice, they can either get advantage dice. Um, so this is, you know, you could have a special ability. It could be that you're in a dance contest against the best dancer on the entire island. And so maybe they get an advantage die. Um, right. Or you can add a thing called a wrath die, um, which is basically if the strife player is like, you know what? The gods are mad that you're like, whatever the god of dance is favors the best <laughs> dancer and you're trying to outdance them. And so uh, the then strife player can then add a, ra- a wrath die. Uh, D8, D10, or D12, depending on how angry the gods are. Um, yeah, I was a little confused on that specific point because I was like, "There's also a wrath mechanic in the like, what is it called? The like, the the end game shit where you like fill out the gods' happiness yeah. and and madness at you." And I, I couldn't tell if that was like a thing that you needed to, like, the, did the god already need a wrath point to use a wrath die or whatever? But. Anyway, I'm getting uh, so in the weeds here. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I mean, the the thing I will say about the Wrath Die, it seems very like it is. There's a couple of things like this where it's like uh, this should the, the Strife player should keep track of this. And I, I don't feel like there was quite a lot of there wasn't like a, quite a lot of information about like, you know, guidance on exactly how that might look. Um which seems fine. It's not like at the end of the world, but I, I do think it was one of those things where I was like, well, that's actually like, I mean, just adding a D12 to the pool could like kind of massively change things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Let me finish with this bad example and then. <laughs> it's an incredible example. <laughs> um, so we're saying this troll is, is just wild eyed and grog. Uh, so it's got a D8 a D, and a D6. Uh, the strife player will roll those two dice. Uh, it will. They will take whatever the highest dice is and add five to it, which is a representative of the strife level of the island. Five is default. Um, there are basically you can do f- fiction-oriented reasons why that would go up or down throughout the course of your engagement with the island. Um, say here, I got a six. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm the strife player. I rolled a three on my six-sided die. That was the highest I got. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that means. Uh, Anyone who enters this contest has to meet or beat an eight with their own die pools, dice pools. Um, and so they will go through basically the same process, right? You'll say like, well, my, my, like my character, right? Is a, uh, you know, what was the, what was the one I thought was cool? Like forge maker or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Forge Lord or something. <laughs> no. You just I'm... love, you just love forges. <laughs> I'll be uh, <laughs> Forge Lord Bethany, the um, the the scion of Demeter. Uh, so I would roll my I would not roll my Forge Lord because I don't think that has anything to do with fighting this troll. I would roll my name dice because it's my name, 
and I would roll uh, blood whatever my die is in Blood and Valor. Um, I think Forge Lord Bethany's probably not pro- primarily a warrior, so I would be rolling two d six at that point. Um, if I roll, then two d six is a fine number to roll because uh, when the players roll, instead of adding a fixed number, they just add their two highest dice together. Um, true. So, you know, if I rolled 2d6 and, uh, what did I say? It was eight, uh, and got, you know, a six and a one, I would fail. And so I would suffer. Uh, if I got, uh, you know, an eight or above, I would succeed. And what was, uh, what was, how many, um, how many dice is, uh, shit? Um, I've forgotten Cody's epithet. <laughs> Uh, I also have eagle-eyed, maybe eagle-eyed. Does that sound right? Eagle-eyed Cody? I don't remember. I think that's a band from the 90s. Sure, that sounds right. (laughs) Um, uh, But like, say, um, so yeah, say I rolled an eight, uh, sorry, uh, Forge Lord, if it was Forge Master was the one in the book, Forge Lord Bethany rolls an eight and an eagle-eyed Cody rolls a 12. What happens, BW? Uh, it's a great question. It's a great <laughs> question. Um, so, so like you've said, the hero prevailing is equal to or greater the strife players. Uh, if it's less than your hero suffers. Um, if all heroes suffer, the opponent will win the contest. Uh, if if one of them wins, if one of the heroes wins, then you win. The other thing we're saying, it, everything you said is exactly correct. So, um, to try and state it in a shorter amount of time as a recap. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So when when a contest is coming up, the strife player often will be the one to go, aha, this feels like a contest. Um, The strife player in a contest will pick the domain of conflict. uh, So which of those four Um, assemble the opponent's dice pool based on name and epithet and any other bonus die. Uh, You could get a bonus die via wrath, so saying that the gods are upset, and that adds a die to the pool, or advantage dice, uh, which could be, you know, a bunch of different things, but basically some special abilities or uh, that you have some sort of specific fictional detail that means you should have a... Uh, either an extra D6, D8, or D10. Um, And then the Strife player rolls all of those together, takes the highest, single highest die from that pool, and adds the current Strife level, where a Strife level is by default plus five. So uh, it's a contest, and you're trying to basically beat numbers. Um, And so then the player does the exact same thing, right, in terms of speaking their name. So you take a die for your epithet if it applies, you take a die for your name, and then you take a domain die for whatever your die is in that domain. You can then also add a bunch of stuff. There's just a bunch more proper nouns coming, Uh right? So you can mark pathos, which is sort of like the harm mechanic. (laughs) Um, If you want to include your die from a second domain, you can invoke divine favor, uh, which is calling on the strength of a god. And if you do, you add a a d4 to your pool. 
um, and spend that divine favor. This is an interesting option. Yes, this this bit is really cool. Yeah, um, I'm not a huge fan of the way that dice pools can balloon in this game, but this one specific, I think, fucking rules. Yeah. So, uh, so again, as the player, uh, so the other thing is you can spend a bond, which we talked about very brief briefly, mm-hmm. but you can spend a bond to get an extra die. Um, and if you you can have an advantage die as a player as well. So that gets you your pool. If your pool includes a D four, um, what you do is you. Uh, sum your two highest die, but not including that D4, right? Yes. Um, so you take your two highest die that you roll, you sum those together. If you have a D4, um, you then just add whatever you rolled on the D4 to that number. Does that make sense? Yep. And you're, again, trying to beat the Strife player. So um, equal to or greater, hero prevails, Um and then after all of this is done, after we've rolled our die and we've seen who's won, you then, quote, recite your deeds. So to some of your earlier points, the way combat works and specifically the way contests work in this case is you basically like do all the fiddly stuff, roll your die and then go, OK, so what happened? <laughs> yes, um, exactly. Which is, you know, very different than, for instance, your apocalypse world kind of approach. Um, to you know where I think Apocalypse World is where it started like to do it you do it that kind of language Um, you don't say the name of the thing you're doing you do the thing and then interpret it this is the opposite it's uh, the the strife player goes hey there's a troll hanging out and you go I want to fight that troll and then the next person goes I want to fight that troll and the next person goes I want to help somebody fight that troll I don't really feel like fighting the troll yeah Um, and then you roll your dice as, as they come up and like to to break it down even further, right? The the like very bare bones structure of this is strife player rolls some dice, adds a fixed number to the highest dice. Everyone else rolls uh, their dice based on a bunch of proper nouns. And if you if you beat the strife player, you did good. If you beat everyone else, you did better. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, it's like it's pretty simple, like in a lot of ways. Um, and because of all the proper nouns, I think feels way more clunky than it actually would to play. In part because yes. if you look at the player sheet, it's actually pretty straightforward, like how to sort of combine things. Um, and once you've done your th- like once you've done your third contest, you're not even gonna have to think, right? You're just gonna know what your name die is. You're gonna very quickly be like, ah, my epithet really doesn't apply here, does it? Okay. <laughs> or you're gonna um, be like. Uh, how do I bullshit my way into making this yeah, apply? <laughs> exactly. Um, so do you think it's worth talking about battles and the difference? And then we can kind of like come back and kind of talk about combat in general. Um, yeah, let me, let me try this one again. This one also. Great. Uh, and my goal is to be less long winded. Um, what are the, what are the specific sections? I know it starts with the clash or no, it clash? starts with the threat. Clash, threat, finale. Ah. Clash, threat, finale. So each of these three things is run almost exactly like a standard contest, but they are all oh. linked together into one thing. Yes? Uh, can I ask you to maybe very briefly explain just like what a battle, how a battle is different in terms of like the flow of the game quickly? Does that um, make sense? I can also just say the thing I'm fishing for. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> uh, 
Um, battles are are big, and they're often the end of the island. Is that what you're ba- looking for? Yeah, basically that. So the the contest is sort of the general combat mechanic, and you kind of do it over and over and over again for all of the different things. But every island you go to will end with a big battle, which is yes. some big opponent, right? Yeah. And theoretically, you know, later in the campaign, you might be having multiple battles per island or whatever. But yeah. Um, it's, they're your raid boss mm-hmm. situation. Um, so yeah, start with the clash, um, which is run basically like uh, just a regular contest with the difference that you are choosing your own domain. Um, it's not defined by the, stri- uh, the strife player. You can just be like, well, I'm going to come into this battle with, uh, in the book, there's an island with a very large snake on it, for instance. Um, I'm going to come into this battle with this large snake, like just gunning to kill this snake. So I'm going to use blood and valor. And the next person over me would be like, I really want to find out what is animating this giant snake. Um, so I'm going to come in it with resolve and spirit and sort of be doing more of a communing with the gods, investigating what's happening here kind of approach, um, which is not allowed in regular contests. Mm-hmm. Um, the point of winning the clash is to, uh, basically it's to, to get a better position for the rest of the battle. Um, whoever wins, uh, gets a, a D10 advantage die, which you can use during the battle only. And given what we just talked about with contest, the D10 is actually like pretty big, right? Because yes. if you're adding up your two highest numbers as a player, the, uh, the idea of getting a D10 is in there extra extra is pretty exciting especially yeah especially if you're doing like a one shot or early in the campaign i feel like if you're i feel like at the time you're working with a you know a d12 name die that might feel a little less useful but also you're probably about to retire your character anyway so correct um so after the after the clash which is like i said very straightforward we have the threat which is like kind of the coolest contest thing in this game i think agreed do you yeah Mm-hmm. Um, the threat is split into two different contests, basically. Uh, so after the clash, the strife player, um, who could also have won the clash and get that D10 advantage die. Um, it's not just among the players. Um, the, the strife player will be like, okay, this snake, um, you know, fucking launches out from underground and is going to like, you're going to keep fighting it, but it's also going to threaten this island um, in some material way that you ha- you can defend against. You know, maybe it's going to kill a bunch of people. Maybe there's like a specific person that you've met theoretically over the course of the thing that it's targeting. Um, I guess theoretically it could be like, you know, it could be, you know, specifically being like, well, you know, Hera's temple is here and I want to and fuck Hera for some reason because snakes hate Hera, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is well known. <laughs> um, uh, so the the players will then choose. Um, there are there are they going to try to continue to seize advantage of of the battle or seize control, um, sort of like you were doing in the clash phase, or are you going to defend against the specific threats that the uh, strife player has laid out for you? Um, any players on defense don't have to choose what thing they're defending. Um, they just say, "I'm going to roll on defense." And if you succeed, you get to stop one of these specific threats from happening. Um, and then, uh, so that side of the battle happens, um, and you find out whether or not, you know, Paris Temple is going to get uh, ate up, or a bunch of people are, or, you know, neither or both. 
And that's just a straightforward, like, if you win the defense, those, that thing does not happen. If you lose, it does. And um, winning and winning the defense is basically just doing the thing we've described as a contest, right? So running yes. running through the contest, getting your dice pools together, etc. Matching or beating the Strife player's uh, number. And the other side of it um, is the Seize Control. So you're also just doing another contest here. Um, but the the outcome is, uh, well, that you, you get to sort of <laughs> dictate the outcome of the battle if you win. Um, so this one, so with the defender side, the winner is going to get the glory, or like the high, the best player is going to get the glory, which we haven't even gotten into. Um, but that's it. On the seize control side, the person who gets the highest roll is going to not just get the glory for that part of the battle, but um, specifically be able to say like, "Here is what's ha- what happens if we win, and here is what happens if we lose." Yeah. Uh... I think this is very, I think this is very cool. Um, The, the way it's worded, this is page 33 and at least the PDF I'm looking at of the book, but if the heroes win, they decide what's at stake for the opponent, which is just, I just, I don't know. It's, it's a pretty normal sentence, but I, I just think that the forcefulness of it is very cool, right? Like, uh, to continue, uh, you, they decide what's at stake for the opponent in the finale. They may choose death, imprisonment, exile, a change of heart, eternal grief and torment, anything that suits the battle and is within their ability to impose. Um, yes. And that's that's part of why it rules, right? Is because, yeah. you, you know, the snake example can go, goes in a pretty obvious direction, right? Like, we win, we kill a snake. It's a very large snake that's, like, really scary. Um, but you theoretically could be like, if we win, the what's a what's a wild ass example of a thing you could do with a with a giant godly snake of some sort? Um, there's well, it's it, so it's not for the snake, but at one of the, so one of the islands in the book is specifically about uh, the I don't remember their name now, and I'm trying to find it, but it was specifically about weaving, which just caught my eye. Oh, interesting, uh, really. But like, yeah, like huh. one of the final, <laughs> like one of the things you could do as the final battle is essentially like convince convince them to stop weaving fate because mm. they're doing it as an art project and what they're doing <laughs> is affecting actual humans who are living in the world. Um, and so your final battle, like it could be that they die, but it could also be that you like destroy their magical loom and they can no longer like all of a sudden it's not just that Island. It's like fate in general is sort of broken or whatever. Or you could, if, and this is kind of what I'm getting at, right? Like you could then take that to the next step also, right? Uh, you, yeah. It wouldn't have to just be die or destroy. You could be like, Oh, we uh, conscript this like Correct. whole Island and we are taking them on our, fucking boat and we are going to be in charge of fate <laughs> yeah 100 in the world now yeah um so yeah g- being able to take control of of the stakes of the finale seems fucking cool um yeah it is i think fucking cool i would agree yeah. with that assessment. Uh, and then part three of the battle is the finale uh, and you just do one you just do one more contest and uh and then you figure out if you know if the <laughs> <laughs> I really, I thought it'd be really funny for a second, and I know it isn't, so I'm not telling the joke. I'm explaining it uh, to Great. mix my uh, examples up and say, you know, like 
you find out if uh, if you can script the snake to control fate forever, or if the island of weavers eats you alive. Uh, it's not very funny. Um, <laughs> Great, it's good stuff. <laughs> Thanks. That's why people um, tune in. Or if yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so yeah, you just do the the last contest. I I don't remember there being anything specifically like different about it. Is do you remember there being any like? No, I mean, no. So the actual like finale contest is is just a contest, right? Um, But the the winner is the victor. I I think that the interesting thing to me about the finale is specifically there's kind of three places you can end up at the end of a battle, right? So the way it's laid out is page 36. One, the heroes lose the finale. Right. So the heroes lose, the strife player won. And uh it's just you know, it's just like the bad result, basically. Um, but you could have the heroes win the finale, but still lose the previous one where you were trying to seize control. So you as the heroes because you lost the seas contest, right? Like you were not able to set the sort of domain or even set kind of the stakes, right? But you still won the finale. Um, So like the way it's said here is strife is beaten back and the island is set on a path toward recovery, but it will not be easy. The heroes are victorious, but their enemy is not brought to account. So the opponent remains, um, and then the other thing is they win everything, right? So the heroes won the seas contest so they set the domain they set the stakes and they ended up winning the finale um and so i just thought it was kind of interesting that you can do your big battle and there is a way for you to to win the final contest but have it either right be kind of a pyrrhic victory or a partial victory um i thought that was really interesting that like the the way the seas challenge sort of mechanic kind of plays into the final contest the finale contest and kind of the different the different sort of um collections of like win one lose one lose one lose one all of that i thought was kind of interesting yeah um i i'm looking at this this pdf now also and i remember specifically actually finding this um summation a little annoying oh really um because i was like like these this is like accurate but also not right like because it doesn't it doesn't account for any of the defend stuff right uh, or it it like elides that um oh that's interesting so you're saying like in the in the mixed success one even if you uh win the finale but you lost all of your defense ones yeah if you if you won the seas contest and the finale but you didn't defend and the threats were like legit, like you could still end up with an island where like that sounds more like the full loss than the full win in my mind, at least. I I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, So that is, I think the, the, the flaw I see in this setup Um, specifically when you combine it with the guidance that you never go back to an island. Yes. Like, because that takes a lot of the sting out of, for instance, winning the finale, but you lost the seas contest option, right? Where, like, mm-hmm. you didn't get to set the stakes and you didn't get to set the domain, but you still won. 
and that's cool. But like the mixed success there is right. Like the enemy isn't brought to account. And so it's still a source of trouble for the island. Well, if you're never going to go back to that island, then like, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> and you, you're, you're you're systemically never going to go back to that island, right? Like that yeah. is a rule in the game. Yeah. Um, which is like, and I guess you could rename it. And if you like, you know, there are ways you could go around that for sure. But like, it did take some of the teeth out of what I thought was kind of a cool possible mechanic where you can you can end up winning and still losing. Um, but you'd really your table would have to be like really bought in and excited. Um, yes, and I, I think that's that is also not to go back to the the conversation about narrativism and, and gameism, right? But like that was another thing, like point for me in the like the thing you're not doing, the thing you're doing here is telling micro stories in service of having a fun time with dice more yeah. than building out. I mean, obviously more than building out a world because you're explicitly not doing that. The book has done that for you yeah. um, <laughs> um, or whatever Paragon system uh, game you have bolted onto it. Um, but also just in terms of like, yeah, building out a, a narrative, it, it just seemed harder to me if you're, you know, I guess you could theoretically have, you know, some other pirates or something that are like recurring NPCs or like, uh, you know, um, uh, what's Bruce Campbell's name on Xena? <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't remember. Uh, Autolycus or something like that? That sounds vaguely correct. It's been a long it's, time. That's definitely a character's name in Xena. I don't know if it's the right one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's like the, the, like, the, friendly kind of bumbling thief who like shows up you know three times a season or whatever yeah um that sounds familiar i don't remember name at all yeah um but yeah like i I guess you could sort of have those npcs in there to like give a sort of narrative through line and like update you on on like things that are happening but like it feels a lot more like a old school dungeons and dragons like Nah, we're gonna go fucking hit this dungeon, kill a bunch of shit, sell our shit in town, and then go kill some more shit um, thing than a, like, an exploration of themes, etc., etc. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we talked about this um, uh, during, like, the Dating.Sim and Wishlist stuff, too, which is, like, so much of this depends on the table you're at, which is just, like, right, this is just probably a caveat we could say about literally anything we read or talk about but it's like um, how um if you ever listen to anything where people give advice to potential players or gms the answer is always talk to the people at your table about your problems yeah (laughs) Um, that is that is the underlying thing we have like for us here is like your table could be uh, absolutely wildly different and it will be (laughs) Um, yeah well and so i like I think one of the one of the ways to address some of the stuff we just talked about, I think with the battles could be talking a little bit about what you do after the battles, um, because there are like mechanisms for taking right. Like, w- what did we do on that island? There are mechanisms for turning that into, for instance, player power or things along those lines, or even like characterization stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna be real with you here. Uh, the Exodus and Voyage sections of this book are the things I understand absolutely the least. Great. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. Let's talk about the next chapter. Uh, so, yeah. Respite uh, is the next chapter. And basically, Respite is after you have completed all of your um, contests and sort of the big final battle, what do you do to get you off the island and to the next one? So there's kind of very high level. There's an exodus process. So there's a four-step process to sort of leave the island. It's pretty straightforward, right? You kind of narrate kind of what, what the destiny of the island is based on how your battle ended. Um, each hero player then records a great deed. Um, so this is, you know, something that they'll be remembered for or like a cool action or it could be a trophy. Mechanically, the way these great deeds work is that you can use them in the future for an advantage die. So to add another die to your pool um, if they apply to the specific contest. Specifically uh, once, right? Uh, they get used up. Correct. Yes. So you can use it once and you can check it off. It is still part of sort of the history of your hero, um, but you can't use it again. Uh, interestingly, you can basically say, listen, I want to be able to p- call on this, you know, great action, this great deed or this trophy. Um, and so you can propose some sort of contest that would allow you to like reinvigorate it or whatever and uncheck the box, which is I yes. think, pretty clever and cool. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, you could be like, I, I know I used the time that I, you know, beat... Hecate at uh, at Checkers, but I think that's going to be really useful in this upcoming island, so can you give me a, an excuse to have that come back up in the world in some way, and I can, you know, try to succeed at a contest in order to be able to be the, you know, uh, <laughs> Forge Lord Bethany who, who beat Hecate at Checkers Incre- again. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. We love Forge Lord Bethany. Uh-huh. I can I'm surprised I remembered her name. <laughs> <laughs> um So yeah, so those are the first two sections, right? So Destiny of the Island, you record your great deed. And then uh the the one thing that I thought was like super duper clever about sort of this Exodus section is uh virtues. So um each hero player records virtues for their hero um to assess the nature of their actions on the island, right? Um so you go around for each of them right? And uh, for each player. And basically, I am eagle-eyed Cody, I think is the bad name I chose. Um, uh-huh. It is. So I am eagle-eyed Cody. And it would I would say, okay, every other hero player, so Forge Lord Bethany and other people, mm-hmm. give me a virtue, either acumen, so a display of knowledge, wisdom, cunning, courage, grace, or passion. And basically, every other hero player will give me eagle-eyed Cody, uh, one of these virtues based on how they, you know, how they saw eagle-eyed Cody behave on the island. Uh, The other heroes don't have to agree. So you could end up with one virtue in acumen, one virtue in courage, one virtue in grace, one virtue in passion, et cetera, are multiple. And the way virtues are used are sort of at the end of, at the end of the life of a hero when you're reaching the end of their tale, you use these virtues to kind of describe things. Um, but I thought that was uh, pretty clever and pretty interesting to have the way this is set up be that the other players are sort of recording how their heroes saw your hero. I just thought that was clever. This is, I mean, this is one of the strongest narrativist parts of this game, right? I yeah, keep 100%. coming back to that just because it's the, the I guess, metaphor uh, taxonomy that we use. 
or uh, that I brought up earlier, but like, yeah, there, this is a, this is a mechanic that is explicitly just about giving you narrative options uh, at a certain point in the future. It's also basically, I think the, I think it's generally known as like stars and wishes. Have you heard that? I have. Um, yeah. 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 It's like a basically just a mechanical way of doing a stars and wishes kind of like yeah my under my understanding of stars and wishes and it might I think know it's called multiple things but that's the one that I think I've heard um, is like but at the end of a session you go around the table out of character and go this was my star for this session you know this is the thing that I thought was the coolest thing that happened and then this is this is my wish like this is what I wish had come up more often you know it could be like oh yeah when when eagle eyed Cody like fucking um just absolutely beefed that role and like uh and then like spun it into this very funny moment where you like you you know you you did a big pratfall or whatever cuz i know you always play comedy characters that's uh, that's the thing i know de- definitely is true about you and i will hear no argument i love to play comedy <laughs> characters and be very funny it's true it's uh-huh. me um like that would be like us in a you know in a informal stars and wishes way that would be like a star and then the wish might be like but i do i do wish we could get more time sort of like talking together among the party and not, maybe not so much focusing heavily on you know the uh the combat or whatever and the, and the virtues thing is basically like here's everyone go around and say a thing that you thought the person who's getting the virtues did real cool mm-hmm. and 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 we'll like give you a little a little a little chit for it that you can cash in to tell a really cool story later yeah it's neat i like it yeah yeah same cool um the final part of the exodus is reflection which is very straightforward it's uh, if a hero has decided that an epithet no longer applies so eagle-eyed cody lost one of his eyes oh no no nah. And now he's, I don't know, bad at coming up with things. I don't know. I literally, the thing that came to mind was Strong Bad. That's the name of a different character from a different thing. So very creative. Anyway, so uh, that's Exodus. Oh my God. Destiny of the Island. So how did the island end? Great deeds. Um, right. So like a thing you can use for an advantage die virtues where all of the heroes give each other virtues that they saw and then reflection, which is if you would like to change your epithet, you can change your epithet. And now I'm you're sorry I made Cody into a comedy character. It listen, uh, it, Cody already was a comedy character because I love playing comedy characters and you will hear nothing otherwise. <laughs> Um, and now we're off the island. So we're off the island. <laughs> and now we got to get to the next island. Because again, the pitch of this is you are uh, going from island to island for sort of mysterious reasons, trying to find your way home. Um, so the voyage between islands also has four parts, which is handy because that's the same number as the Exodus. Um, so the very. It's f- also, yeah. to be fair, the same number as the competition. Uh, this book is very interested in breaking things up into four parts. Uh, it, which is, yeah. it is. And I will actually say that um, on my first playthrough, I did not find any of the diagrams helpful. I found them mostly pretty confusing. Um, yeah. On my third time through, I was like, oh, these are actually very useful. 
Totally. Now that I know how to read them. But so Voyage, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time here. The very first thing you do is basically refresh your bonds. Because again, you if, if you remember from the beginning, when you create your hero, if you're a human hero, you get two bonds with every other hero in the group. Uh, if you're a demigod, you get one bond with every other hero and then one bond with a god. You then can use those bonds to uh, do the number of things we've talked about already. Um, so the very first thing you do in the voyage is you basically re-up, right? So uh, the heroes relax, enjoy each other's company. I'm reading from the book. This is page 42. Taking turns, each hero player asks one question to another hero. That player answers, then both heroes take a bond with each other. Um, and then you kind of go around Robin, right? So you're refreshing all of the, the bonds. Um, when that fellowship is completed, you also remove all of their marks of pathos, which is another proper noun we have not talked about at all yet. Um, That's fine. We're we're good. Yeah, we're we're we'll get there and cover it at a very high level. But basically, it's harm, right? So pathos is this thing you mark that's harm, and it's harm until it's fate, and, and then yeah, it gets bad. But uh, but the important part of the first part of the voyage is fellowship, right? So you just you got off the island, you're on your way to the next, and so you refresh your bonds. Get Y'all rid of some your big heroes just kicking it. Just, just yeah, just guys being dudes for heroes for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, the second part is uh, sacrifice. So in this case, the hero with the greatest current glory, which is again another currency we have not talked about, um, but will in a bit. Um, that one we actually will touch on. <laughs> Uh, so the hero with the greatest current glory leads a sacrifice to seek guidance and favor in their next trials. Basically, this is uh, this turns into a contest of resolve and spirit that domain. And the reason why you would w- you would do these kinds of sacrifices is because you you are refreshing your currency, which is divine favor. That's the thing that gets you a 1d4. Exactly. Yeah, which is the thing that gets you that 1d4 that you don't add in. Um, Basically, you don't add in as one of your top two die. You add it in as just an extra plus. So divine favor is very, very valuable for the dice pool. So yeah, so if, uh, if... Basically, everybody gets two divine favor. If all of the heroes fail the sacrifice, basically the gods are like pretty unhappy. And this is a very explicit way that a strife player would, for instance, raise like the wrath level, um, which we'd mentioned earlier. Um, Yes. So you do the sacrifice. That is the second thing. And then the third thing on the voyage between islands is leadership. So I've already described this a little bit. It's very it's pretty much exactly the same as how I described it at the beginning. So uh, during the voyage, as you're going from island to island, basically the strife player will describe some sort of like challenge or contest uh, that the ship and the heroes have to overcome. You run this like a contest. The hero who sort of scores the best is the, um, the one who gets to choose the next leader. And again, the leader does a number of things, sets the sort of is able to decide kind of the final approach for any contests and battles. Um, They also get the signs at the beginning of an island that help them sort of figure out what to do on the island. And then after the leadership uh, section of the voyage, uh, then the final part is the Vault of Heaven, which I'm going to be honest, (laughs) is one of the primary sort of long-term progression mechanics and I, it's not that I don't understand it. It's just that I don't find it very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's 
bad. I, I just also think it's unnecessary. Yeah, I, I also <laughs> don't think it's bad. Um, like the the very basic idea of the vault of heaven, right? Is there's constellations in the sky. That's why it's called the vault of heaven. There's a constellation per god, and essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to mark one of the stars in the constellation for a specific god if you pleased that deity while doing things on the island. That's literally all I'm going to say. There's, It's like a whole thing. If you look at the book or if you look, at, look it up online, you'll see. But basically, this is a way that you can kind of mark whether you did a good thing or a bad thing, who's upset with you in terms of the gods, etc. And eventually, you fill out your vault of heaven and you're your hero ends and um, you have reached end game yes reached that, end. that the thing it does is create a system by which you can be like cool we are about to end this campaign or basically which is like good good for it <laughs> and so i think we can just kind of like immediately go into the next chapter which is basically a bunch of stuff around how you get to sort of the end of your character the very first thing in this chapter this chapter is called legacy or sorry it's called legend um, the very first thing is glory, which I think we should talk about a little bit. So we've not really yes. mentioned this, right? But basically, each time you're in a contest, um, so again, contests are the basic sort of combat mechanic uh, and the basic resolution mechanic. Um, and so contests, as opposed to battles, battles are the final sort of thing on an island, but they are also just run via contest. So every time you participate in a contest as a hero, you earn glory, and essentially what you were trying to do is get the most glory because getting more glory eventually will allow you to advance your name die, which means yes. you start with what, a D6, I think? You, yes, correct. So you start with a D6 as your name die. Again, your name die is going to, you're always going to get your name die. That's like your baseline die in your die pool. And so you can advance it once you earn set amounts of glory to either a D8 eventually a d10 and then finally a d12 and so uh this both has very clear effects as you are playing the game but it also determines the quote-unquote strength of their legend which is the end game um yes or the retirement of your character exactly specifically yeah, yeah. um so that's glory so glory is you're kind of earning it throughout um can i i'm gonna roll us back a little bit back to my very long belabored uh troll uh dis- <laughs> description of the rules mm-hmm. um uh if if any of that was parsable the, so the thing that i left out of the competition or, or the the con- conflict contest um, contest there's a lot of there's a lot of co uh, uh <laughs> words uh the contest was uh, like I described, the, the strife player, they roll the strife level first. It's the highest in their dice pool plus a, a fixed number. Um, that number also doubles as the amount of glory that you can win from this contest. Correct. Um, so w- in my example, I said I rolled a three and then you added the five. So there was eight glory sort of on the line in uh, in that contest. Um, and as I said, I think um, Forge Lord Bethany succeeded with it with an eight and um <laughs> strong bad cody uh thank you uh, got like a 12 thank you. i did in <laughs> fact change my epithet thank you for noticing of course um so in that case the 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 basic breakdown is if you engage in a contest at all uh you get one glory if you 
succeed in the contest but aren't the best, and that, that is a proper noun, you get half of the 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 like strife level rounded up. So on an eight, eagle-eyed or eagle-eyed Jesus, uh, <laughs> Forge Lord Bethany would get four glory for that contest for succeeding, but not succeeding as well as Strong Bad Cody did. Strong Bad Cody would get the full eight glory there. Um, this is the this is the intergroup competition element. This is the reason that you might want to. Um, you know, like in a contest be like, well, uh, you know, the other, the other person we're playing with already succeeded at this, um, at this task, already beat the, the strife level, but I'm still going to use my divine favor here to try to get, to try to edge out to like get a little bit higher of a dice roll than, than they got. And based on both listening to older versions of second edition of uh Aegon and also the bit I read of the first edition uh it is very clear that this this was like the sort of core mechanic um for a long time was the and it was like a lot fucking harsher um i think i know at some point in the second edition it was there wasn't like a set number so in this game it's when you hit 80 you get a d8 named dice when you, you then you roll back to zero, and then when you get 120 glory, you get a d10. Um, in other editions, they had mechanics where it was like, you just total up your glory at the end of every island, and whoever is in first place, you get to advance your name die. Yeah, the, it was it was very much more explicitly glory as like a a limited resource you are, you are fighting for among the yes. players in the sort of early version, for sure. Yeah. And then, and so in this, in this, in this version, this final version, as it stands to, to this point, um, glory is basically like the thing you are competing with other players for, um, but in a more friendly way. Yeah. <laughs> um. And, and just to, just to give some sort of context, uh, cause I just did this math very quickly and I believe it's correct. Right. But so you had said, so there's basically three levels, right? So you start with a D6, and so you could upgrade it to a D8, like you said, 80 glory, and then it goes back to zero. And then you need to earn 120 more glory to get to D10, goes back to zero, and then 240 to get to D12. I'm pretty sure that the absolute highest glory could be in a in a single contest is 18. Because your highest die, the highest it could possibly roll would be a 12, a D12, right for the strife player and i think the absolute highest that you're then the the plus that you get um the strife level would be plus six so i think 18 is the highest which is just interesting because that does mean you could you could upgrade to a d8 in probably what six or eight contests on average depending on how lucky you were um yeah if you like one six out of eight, right? Um, so it definitely yeah. will take you a while to get there, which I, I don't think is bad or good. I just thought it was interesting the like s- the scale of those numbers. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't really thought about that at all. And and this is, I mean, maybe this kind of cuts over to, uh, I mean, definitely my, but maybe both of our sort of like, or maybe light dismissal of the Vault of Heaven stuff. And this cuts back to what I was saying initially, right? Is like with this style of book, some I'm like, if you're gonna have this endgame shit, like you need you need more of it because if the <laughs> yeah if you're if you're basically still operating with 
you know, a very mild, mild amount of advancement, but you're then, yeah, going from like, I'll, I'll get this in like two or three islands to, I will get this in 12 or 14 islands. Yeah. <laughs> theoretically with the 240. And the difference is like, you get up, you get two more possible numbers on the same dice roll. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not yeah. even like you're adding to it. It's, you can still get a one yeah. on all of these. Um, it seems a bit silly to me. Um, like it, it feels like there needs to be more. It ne- there needs to be more here, or there needs to be less here. Um, and uh, you know, that's like, like as we have said today, your your table will differ. But for me, that's that is just like a, a structural f- issue I had tend to have with these like medium sized indie RPGs. Yeah, I, I would t- I would tend to agree. Like the the it it feels none of the sort of progression mechanics themselves are interesting enough or like compelling enough to make me care about them. It would have to for me come down to I just get really invested in my hero, right? Yes. And I think that's where for just again, your table may differ, everybody may have different opinions, but like for me in particular, I know that that my biggest struggle for caring about sort of Aegon proper as like a long-term game for me it is a lot it, a lot of it does genuinely kind of just have to do with like the theming and and that like I don't know that I could make a character in this kind of theme that like I'm that invested in because it's just not the shit I care about. Right. Even in terms of like really nerdy, like personal stuff of like, I don't know when I was younger, I thought being a falconer was like the coolest thing you could ever be in a game. Um, Sure. Which is true. I mean, falconers are great. Uh, And like, maybe I could make like a cool (laughs) Greek falconer, but it's just, Right. Like, I think just in a different setting, I might just be more in personally, I might just be more inherently like, yeah, I want to get more whatever the equivalent of glory would be. But if we're speaking personally here, Mm -hmm. this is also coming from the person who ran uh, Dungeons and Dragons game, Dungeons and Dragons campaign for about two years and never gave out a single mark of experience because I didn't care and no one noticed. So just, yeah, uh, you have (laughs) said this to me before, maybe even already in an earlier episode every single time. It's incredible to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, agony is boring. Yeah. So, (laughs) so I, I think we can kind of talk through pathos and agony super quickly because technically pathos has gone into in more detail in the next chapter, but the basic idea in terms of endings, right? Which is, this is the legend chapter. Yes. Uh, But the basic idea is, is you're going through when you fail a contest or you fail a contest in the middle of a battle, you suffer. One of the ways you can suffer is by marking off pathos. I found it very useful to think about this in terms of stress in Blades in the Dark, for instance, because it's a very similar mechanic. You have a set number of pathos things. You can either mark off pathos because you suffered, or you can mark off pathos to give you a die in your pool. There's also other small things, like there are certain enemies that are like epic or something, uh, where you like automatically mark pathos just to engage with them. Correct. And then there's other ones that like have another tag that will give you an extra pathos if you suffer against them. So there's like other mitigating things here, but yeah, high level, absolutely what you just said. Thank you, BW. And and so basically, uh, you have a set a set number of pathos boxes. Once you mark the last of them, you then enter what's called agony. So. Agony is you can you make that noise all the time. It's like really oh, annoying no. to play with. Um, oh, I hate it. It says it. it says in the book like be as annoying as po- it doesn't say that. Um, but so when you enter agony, 
this is from page 48. <laughs> they can no longer press on against hardship without serious cost. So when you enter agony, you mark a different thing called fate, uh-huh. <laughs> which basically you have a set number of ticks you can mark off in your fate track. Um, when you mark them off, you also get, you can get a boon eventually, which is just like, you know, it's basically more dice for your pool. But as you're marking stuff off on your fate track, once you get to the end and you've marked off all of your fate, you have entered agony often enough. It's the end of your hero, basically. So when you've filled up all of your pathos, you enter agony. Once you're in agony, if you suffer more pathos, while you're still in agony, then you mark another fate box. And I think I mentioned this already, but basically the way to recover from agony and the way to reset your pathos is to finish the island, get on the boat, and all of that goes away. Um, you you do the, the the guys being guys thing. Exactly. You do the, the fellowship. Um, yes. And so the only thing that stays then is whatever you've marked off on your fate track. I, it's fine. Like it, I don't. I don't think this is bad. I don't think any any of this stuff is bad. It's just I don't find it all that interesting. Yep, agreed. And like I, 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 what it has made me want to do, I will say, is read some of the reskinning, like some of the new kind of like Paragon system things, because I'm just yeah. I'm just curious what this might look like in other contexts, and I might just like literally just with different theming and different sort of like flavor, I might just be like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. I get this. Um, but the idea of, you know, being a hero serving the gods and getting boons from your hero, like, it's just, again, it's just a lot of the theming stuff that I'm like, eh, okay, that's cool. I, it just occurred to me that there was, there was probably like a Paragon System game jam on itch at some point, right? Like, I, yeah. that has to have happened. I believe, I believe there, there absolutely was, yes. I'm, yeah, I'm, I think I'm just gonna, hopefully, I think at some point I'm going to at least bookmark a couple things and be like, right, I wonder if any of these are useful for an Island Demeter future thing or something like that, or just to read. Cause that's a very good point. And yeah, maybe, maybe some of my dismissal of this end game stuff is also related to just being like, yeah, I like Xena a lot, but I don't, actually don't give a shit about sword and sandals stuff or ancient Greece, uh, myth stuff. So being like, wow, hell yeah, I got a D 10 name now, baby. <laughs> Like yeah, cool, cool dude. <laughs> also, I I thought about somebody adding me earlier, and I know the whole fucking point of a dice pool game is that you don't do uh, just flat modifiers. That like is <laughs> is like undermining the whole ideology of the the, the system. Um, and I don't mean ideology in a bad way. I mean like just the the structure of thought of uh, why you would do a dice pool game as opposed to other kinds of games. I, I understand that, and, and you know, the point wasn't me being like, you should have added flat uh, bonus modifiers or whatever to, instead of, you know, upping your dice, uh, like your name dice to a d12 or whatever. It's just, it was a, it was a flippant way of saying that I, I don't find it very interesting. I was not trying to make a, a serious point. Please don't at me. <laughs> I, I promise I will never, ever at you. Um <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I think the last thing to touch on, which I don't, again, I don't think we need to talk too much about because of all the things we just literally said. Uh, but the, the very last section in this is, is when you have filled up all of your fate boxes, what happens, right? And the answer is your hero is done. Um, so you kind of can, you're kind of sort of w- w- welcome to come up with your own thing, right? Like... <laughs> 
once you've marked your fate boxes, you can either finish the current island that you're on or you can retire immediately. Um, but basically, it walks you through. So at the end of a session in which any heroes have met their end, their players determine the legend for each hero. So you assess their name, the great deeds, the virtues, and you basically write it out as their, like, you know, as their complete name. So the example from the book, this is page 50. During the game, Allison's character was known as Shadow Wise Zentropa, Scion of Serta. Nadia played Clever-Eyed Hagne, Scion of Athena. And then you basically look at your two highest virtues, so the virtues that you got the most of, and you then get a title. So, for instance, if I... If uh, Strong Bad Cody... (laughs) uh, (laughs) Two highest virtues were Acumen and Passion... The th- one of the th- I could choose one of the three legendary titles: architect, seer, or visionary. And basically, you then list off sort of like your greatest deed, and it's kind of cool. Like you put it into like a little there's like a little format thing, right? Which is like you know your character's name. Here's your greatest deed, etc. And you know you get your cool title or whatever. Um, and then there's some questions to answer specifically about you know, based on your vault of heaven, like, so which gods did you end up serving? Because if you remember, the vault of heaven has basically all of the constellations devoted to the god, and you're, like, checking things off if you, like, pleased that god on an island. And so then there's, like, more questions that you sort of answer that are helping you kind of narrativize the end. Um, so, 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 strong bad Cody here. Mm-hmm. Um, who waits, who still waits for you to their dying day and hopes they, you will return home? This is a great question. Um, <laughs> I think Forge Lord Bethany, probably. Oh, that makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and th- <laughs> and then you basically put it all together, right? So whatever your yes. whatever your die size is for your name die at the end, D6 is your notable up to D12, which is you're an epic hero, so you'll never be forgotten, etc. And then you make a new hero. You know, there's some guidance there. But for the most part, that's sort of the end. That is, so you're gaining glory, you're upping your... Um, your name die, you're uh, marking off pathos to get into agony. Once you're in agony, you start marking off your fate. Once you mark off fate, you get these boons that help your character become even more powerful. And then once you've uh, marked off all your fate, you narrate the end. Um, And then you're done. And you make a new hero or you stop playing the game. Either one. So we could say, for instance, that it would be Strong Bad Cody, Visionary of Athena. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, uh, extremely comedic pratfaller, uh, who left Forge Lord Bethany to wait forever. Mm-hmm. That could be your name, your legend. <laughs> it could be, honestly. Uh, yeah, just for instance. Yeah, just for instance. So that's like, uh, so the the next few chapters have some a bunch of information. Um, but that kind of takes takes you through like the the sort of general arc of the game, right? So you make your hero, you pick a leader, you go into an island, you do your contest and your battle, you leave the island, you do the voyage, and then you go to another island, et cetera, et cetera. See, there's one thing in here that we've been talking about this whole time, mm-hmm. and for some reason the book hasn't really gotten into it. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. What the fuck's an island? This is a great question. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, I really think like the, the islands 
are so important to understanding how this game works. Uh, it's so important. So what is an island? It's a great question. In the book, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So there's twelve islands given in the book. Uh, as part of the Kickstarter, they there's a PDF for Kickstarter backers that had I want to say like uh, maybe another six to eight islands made by people uh, as part of the stretch goals. But basically, an island is a description of a place. It's a two-page spread. <laughs> uh, most of them tend to be two to three pages. Um, the basic components are you need a basic description of what it looks like so the player the hero players can sort of come up to it and be like oh this is what we're looking at you need signs of the gods so this is sort of the first thing that happens right so they get to the island and the very first thing is the leader in the party gets to see the signs of the gods and then after the signs of the gods have been read out there's an arrival sort of scenario usually this involves one to two sort of options for a contest right it could be so like i'm looking at uh what island am i looking at i'm looking at an island called cryos it's one of the first islands in the book that was uh that one i feel like is at least based on the three uh actual plays i listened to the the most common starter island because i listened to two actual plays that both started in cryos yeah, so you go to this island, there's a mining settlement, the arrival is, there's two leaders, uh, and basically they recognize you and are like, listen to me, I, these are the things I care about. And then you can go through a, a sort of your first contest, right? Um, you could try and fight somebody, you could command uh, somebody to, you know, do a certain thing, so that would be like arts and oration. Uh, but the idea of the arrival trial on an island is to kind of get you, like, in understanding what's happening on the island and understanding, like, how to to sort of move forward and, like, do more. And then islands usually have th three to four sort of specific trials, which is, like, a series of linked contests. Um, and all of those should sort of naturally lead to the battle. And usually there's a couple of options for, like, the big final battle on an island – and then in addition to those things, there's, you know, characters. So like specific people on the island, specific NPCs. If there's any notable locations, if there's any like special rewards you can earn. If there's any mysteries. Um, and all of this is sort of uh, put together ahead of time and, you know, shared kind of as you go through the island. So if you uh, if you've read through the book, for instance, up until the point where we get to the islands chapter, all of this Everything we've talked about is going to feel intensely confusing and abstract. Um, uh-huh. The literal very first time I read through this first island, Cryos, I was like, oh, I get this now. <laughs> Which is, I think it's just a very hard problem to solve from like a how do you put a book together thing, right? Like they reference specific proper nouns in these islands descriptions so i totally understand why you would want people to read through all of the mechanics but also it's very hard sometimes to conceptualize what a game of this would look like before you get to the island so that's what i have to say so far in general thoughts about islands b um islands are the thing that most explicitly goes against my own tendencies as a gm mm -hmm. And also probably the most interesting things about this th thing about this game to me. 
like or not the most interesting thing let me but that's incorrect um the reason i am most like i kind of want to run this shit just to see how this works um yeah 100 percent. because um there there is a bit at the end of the islands chapter that's like here's how you can create your own island but even that is like so constraining compared to literally most other role-playing games i've ever read (laughs) yeah yeah for sure the thing it actually reminds me of this is a weird thing i don't know maybe this is uh maybe this game was inspired by Aegon, but um i i I only managed to run two uh sessions of era and terra by um i'm gonna filibuster for a second uh uh nathan blades and um uh, what is that name? Uh, Nathan Blades and Ruben Ferdinand um, for the Attack and Dethrone God Jam. Um, Era and Terra is a like a game where you you basically make a big fucking god monster for the first section of the game or like first section of a session. Uh, the the heroes go out and kill it, and then they bring it back and they cook it. And there's like mechanics for each of those things. Like, that's the only other game I can think of out and out that has, like, here is the way you can be a GM here. And I'm probably just, like, not thinking of or familiar with, like, a billion other examples of exactly this. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very weird to just be like, here's, here's your prep. If you want to do it, like, you can, you can have your headings already set up in Word. And otherwise, you're just like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull one of these, pre-gen islands that that i think looks good and seems to fit the level of play my players are at and i'm literally just gonna run them through it um you know again D player never in my life touched a module like the that had that sounds like the most uninteresting thing in the world to me um but for some reason the way that these islands are structured uh, and I, I never was able to like pin it down exactly but, like, it's really appealing to me. Um, it seems like it has a bunch of... It seems like it's it's lean enough that it wouldn't be a difficult thing to just, like... Like, literally, probably memorize most of. Um, that there's enough there that you could probably... You could probably futz around a little bit. Do a little... Uh, uh, do a little house ruling or uh, um, improvising and whatever. And uh, make it your own. But also, yeah, just tell a tell a fun story i'm still not totally convinced there's a lot of interesting stories to be found in this game but definitely fun ones um yeah I mean, and yeah it's weird go sorry go on no no no. i, I mean i i i think that it's i think that uh john harper and john nittner were very clever in the way that they tried to construct what an island is because it does feel like there's enough to work with, but it's not so much that you couldn't, you know, go off script or whatever, right? Which I've, I've been thinking of in terms of the difference between like a module and this approach where, you know, you have sort of, uh, oh, sorry, I just scrolled up there. One of the islands in the book, the signs of the gods, that section just says the gods give no signs here. That's very good. It's very, very good. good. Yeah, uh, that's very good. It's very good. Anyway, um, I think they did a really good job, right? Like, uh, there's enough for you to do 
you have to do enough that it's like a very clearly sketched place, right? So um, I think all the guidance they give is really good, right? Uh, let me scroll back down. Um, what do they say? They say, there we go. A good arrival is revealing. It's an exciting and consequential trial, but it also establishes what's wrong on the island. This is from page 137. As opposed to, for instance, just the list of trials that most islands have, which is a good trial is consequential. The outcome should change the situation dramatically. Like, I just think they do a really good job of giving you enough information to, like, understand what this part of the island needs to do while allowing you enough space that you don't feel like you're just kind of reading through a module, right? Like, just like reading entire paragraphs of text talking about characters that you don't know anything about or whatever. Um, I just, I think they've, yeah. I think they've done a really good job of balancing what, what could be, I think a difficult thing is I guess my point. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I'm trying to think this through as I do it. Cause like, you know, the other, I mean, I, the, I've played a handful of dice pool games, um, but I don't, I think maybe dogs in the vineyard has a, has specific stats for NPCs also. But like when I'm thinking of a dice pool game, I'm either thinking of a GM doesn't roll kind of game, mm-hmm. like a Lasers and Feelings, uh, also by John Harper, or I'm thinking of um, uh, Ten Candles, mm-hmm. where the, the GM does roll, but... Uh, the dice pool is affected by how far into the game you are rather than by individual actors. Yeah. Um, and that's like, that's, that's one of the things that is both like feels very limiting in a certain way, but also is done so well that it almost doesn't or doesn't actually. Um, is like, if you need to have a very specific dice pool for every enemy, on an island and your game is oriented in such a way that like the pacing is very clear. You are going to do one Island per session. Like that is the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, whether your session is an hour or four, like you could get through one of these in a single session. And like that requires, like you're saying a really, really specific amount of, <laughs> Um, information and finesse of that information that like yeah this this is like this is it is cool that they have done this Um, that they have made these things both like interesting to read that no sorry not both that they have made these things interesting to read is actually buck wild yeah because yeah uh, it the thing that you actually need here is just a encounter table basically like (laughs) the most utilitarian way to present this would be to strip out the islands entirely. Be like, here's your encounter table. These are the types of things they might encounter. Uh, These are the dice pools that you should have access to so that when you get into a fucking random battle with like some NPC that you thought they were going to like, but they actually didn't decide to fight, you can just refer to page 78. You've got your dice pool right there because they're this type of thing. Instead, they go, here's a short story. Mm-hmm. with all the mechanics you need to run a fucking dice pool contest game. 
Yeah. Quickly. And like the fact that there's 12 examples in the book yes. is so good because they really do range. Like there there was an island with uh, sort of a, a weaving theme. It's called Cordia is the name of the island. It's in the book. But that's the one where they eat you all. Or they eat you at the end. Uh, I don't. Sorry, that was think a callback so. to my bad joke from oh, earlier yes. that I didn't even tell. No, I just said out loud. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's, we love, we love a callback to a joke that not told but explained here at uh-huh. Common Matter of Systems. <laughs> but yeah, like I like the Cordia one in particular. It's uh for I'm not gonna go through it all, but it's page one twenty five, one twenty six, and one twenty seven. But I just think it's a really good example of like one of the more complicated ones, right? Where there's like a shit ton of mysteries. There's like a really cool reward. The final battle is like w- one of them is a dungeon delve. The other option is like oration. It's like convincing the the women who are weaving the fate uh, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And like none of this is long. It's it's three pages of like a pretty small book in terms of like overall layout. And like there's a lot of margin space in this book. Yeah. So it's not even like it's requiring pages and pages and pages and pages. Like it's it's yeah, I think they've modeled it really, really well. And definitely like to me, it, this is where I think it was really easy for me to read through some of these. I didn't read through all the islands because, like I said, there's like 12 in the book. But I read through probably three or four of them, um, like, you know, like paying attention, not just skimming. Um, and this is where I was like, oh, I like even without even like with just literally no interest in the actual like theme and setting. I was like, this is just cool. I would like to see how this plays out both as a hero player and also as a strife player, right? Like Mm -hmm. how intuitive is it to get from signs of the gods to the first arrival trial to any of the other trials on the Island versus the, the battle, right? Cause there's definitely moments in the book where it's like, uh, there's So there's a really good section, I think it's in the next chapter, but there's a really good section where they give a bunch of advice uh, about things. But I think the strife player section is like really very well done. I believe guidance, we actually skipped the guidance chapter because I wanted us to talk at length about islands before that. <laughs> oh, did we? Oh, yeah, you're right. It's right. It's right before. Yeah. Um, that's very helpful because I was frantically trying, trying to, to, to scroll <laughs> and was like, why can't I find this? It's before... Yeah. Um, I, I made a, a quiet executive decision to hit islands because I thought it was, I low key remembered that we said at the very beginning of this, how, uh, both of us were struggling yeah. with this book because we hadn't until we got to the islands thing and that clarified a bunch. And then we recorded for two hours and <laughs> didn't get to the island section. <laughs> so no, it seemed like a, a necessary hit. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, I can't find it exactly, but basically there's, there's a, a few different places where I remember them writing something along the lines of. As they do these trials, it will inevitably lead to the next trial. Or as they finish off the trials, it will inevitably lead to the final battle. And part of me is like, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot of work being done by inevitably. Uh huh. <laughs> um, but it's, it, I, that sounds like a sentence written by somebody who has never played a role playing game before. <laughs> yeah, or somebody who has <laughs> even though it's the opposite, a lot of role playing games and perhaps too many, exactly, yes. and is like just completely underestimating people's ability to get flustered while uh, running a table. But or hungry, or hungry, or tired. <laughs> but th- at the same time, and the reason I I even brought this up, right, is because like 
there was enough in just reading through some of the islands where I was like, "Ah, it actually does kind of seem like you would sort of like, unless your players were, unless you were playing at a table where the, the, the vibe was sort of adversarial or even like a little trolly or whatever, it might take a little more work, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm glad you, I'm glad we fast forwarded to the islands. I do think that this is one of the like kind of secret, really impressive things about this as like a book um, and as a system, because I really do feel, I actually thought of Iera and Tara um, when I was reading through this again today, because I was like, oh, that's kind of like that game where you kind of just like, you have sort of the basic things you need to fill in, right? In a monster hunt. And then you kind of go from there. And it's very similar to the islands, right? You you have some specific things you need to fill in and you need to come up with enough characters that you can act quickly and easily when people, when your players want to do stuff. But, um, but yeah, what, so let's see, what else is left? What else do we want to talk about? Um, I just, I just wanted to touch on one thing in the guidance section. Take it away. Uh, we've, we've talked a bit here and there now about the specifically the strife player stuff in the guidance section the guidance section broadly is just like here's how to run and play this game and it's among the best gm advice sections i've read on anything ever i think um both in terms of like general gming practices and in terms of like but for this game specifically here are things you should do yeah i think i think in general it's really it is really good and i think it's like especially really good for a gone given everything we've talked about, which is like, Aegon's kind of like a slightly weird game in some ways. That's pretty weird, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, I think it's great. But yeah, so you mentioned earlier that like one of the things to avoid for Strife players is don't try to tell a story to the other players. Mm-hmm. The next piece of advice there is don't worry about anyone else's fun. Just to quote the whole thing. They're the hero players and you're the Strife player. You're They're entertaining you and vice versa. The whole outcome of the session isn't on your shoulders. That struck me very hard. Hmm. Do do you have any guesses as to why I particularly would be like kind of blown away by that piece of advice? <laughs> uh, do you have how much do you want me to psychologize you on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, no, as a as as a rule, I will not do that. Uh, no, I mean I, I have a bunch of ideas and also feel similarly. Like I think it, I. I this would have been so useful for me to read before I DM'd for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, so I, I, I say this partially because it actually goes back to, I think, one of the sort of road bumps we had um, when talking about specifically Wishless, mm-hmm. where I brought up, like, this that it seems... That the system seems very weird, and I think I was actually complaining maybe specifically about the um the campaign style mechanics in that game at the time also so that's another theme apparently emerging from <laughs> from the show is b hates yeah. uh campaigns b hates campaigns and b is constantly worried that their players are going to be overpowered yes <laughs> um but the thing that i was uh the, the point that i sort of made at the time um was like that it seemed weird to me that, that in that game, what you were doing is basically just adding more ways to get dice into your pool, right? Was that, that was the, uh, you were just adding, it's not, not even that, you were adding more like whatever they were, attributes or whatever, um, 
that you could call on to get a get a die for the the pool. I don't remember exactly how that game works. And the the point I was sort of getting at was like, why would you just be adding more attributes? That just sounds like more fucking flags to keep track of, and not like you have more advantages. Uh, because I'm a very player flag oriented GM. Like when I'm running a game. I'm fucking worrying about anyone else's fun all the time. And I like that about it. <laughs> um, it is really nice to me to be able to like pick up on when other players are like, f- are, this is a different use of the word flagging, but like are, are flagging, like they're, they're not as engaged and be like, Oh, I bet if I could, th- I bet if uh, I like swerved in this direction, this player would, would, would be all fucking in again. Like that—that that is one of my joys as a GM, and so the advice to like don't worry about someone else's fun is like deeply antithetical to the way I enjoy playing games. Yeah, but also the way it's laid out here is like, yeah, no, that's probably actually a hundred percent what you need to do in this game because this game is not you know, the strife player is not the GM in the way I like to play the GM, and that like demarcation for me was like, oh. I think I could really enjoy playing this game and actually following that advice. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, I, I like, I feel like I had a similar feeling. I don't even remember if we talked about it much, but like thinking about the West Marches style campaign of like, mm-hmm. there's something really fascinating to me about the role that Ben Robbins thinks the sort of the DM or GM should play in a West Marches style campaign that is, I think, replicated very well in Aegon. Yes, totally. More of a facilitator, more of a, like, you literally are facilitating in the way I think of facilitating it, like, work when I facilitate meetings, which is, like, sometimes it's just about checking things off, right? And you're just going down, here's the first thing we got to talk about, here's the second thing we got to talk about, here's the third thing we got to talk about, and, and not investing yourself in the same way that, like, when I used to DM D&D 9,000 years ago, right? <laughs> I was, like, so personally invested in uh, every every beat and movement, right? I wanted people to, like, get the cool stuff I was doing, and I wanted them to understand why it was cool, and it's because I was referencing the fact that they thought it was cool, or, like, it flagged a thing, right? And... Mm-hmm. That's actually kind of exciting to me from a like thinking about how the book is laid out kind of perspective that that you have come away from that you could come away from Aegon and be like, actually, maybe I would like to do this uh, actually, right? I think that's very cool. I think it's uh, I think it speaks very highly of their ability to show how their system works and show the appeal of it. Yes, I like I, I I've I've been very I mean. We're kind of wrapping up a little bit, right? But, like, I've been very impressed in general with this book. I think it's very well done. Um, I also think it could be fun to play. Again, I probably would just struggle with theming more than anything. But, but like, I just, I think they've, they clearly have thought very, very hard about how to deliver quite a lot of information. And it's worth saying, I think, this, like, just clicked together for me about 15 minutes ago. One of the things that I found kind of annoying, which we've we've mentioned already, is that without reading the islands, it was really hard to understand how Aegon works. I think that the way that they've laid it out makes a lot of sense if you view basically what the first 
however many chapters, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The first seven chapters, think of them as Paragon system, not Aegon. And it starts to ma- sure. it starts to make sense why the islands would be separate, right? Because if you're doing a Fast and the Furious reskin, you're not going to go to islands, right? But you are probably going to go from race to race to race to race, right? Yeah. Or whatever. Heist to race to heist, whatever. Ex- yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is just, uh, that finally clicked into place. Like, oh, of course that's why there's not an island earlier on. Because they were probably also putting this together, thinking... We want people to understand what each of these big proper nouns do in the system. So then you could go and you could change glory to, I don't know, clout, I guess, or in Fast and the Furious. I, I'm not sure what they would use. I haven't read that. Family. Family, yeah. Um, and like instead of agony, it could be whatever. Stress, it could be panic attack, uh, whatever. Um, sure, yeah. Uh but yeah, just in general, I think it's I I really I I really think that they've done a very good job here, and and I guess sort of piggybacking right. So you were specifically calling out the strife player stuff. Um, I think it's worth saying there's like a after the islands chapter, there's sort of like a compendium section. There's like a whole like lexicon with a bunch of terms. Um, it's just done really well. Like I think um, again, I I'm not sure if this was when we were just chatting, this will end up in a recording, but uh, I definitely ended up struggling with the diagrams at first. And then by the end was like, Oh, these are actually very helpful (laughs) and like really good quick way to be like, ah, yes. Okay. This is how a battle works. I think they, I think they did a good job in the final section um, of the book is it's called a cultural primer. The way I've summarized this is how to, how to play Aegon or like mod Aegon and not be a jerk. Mm -hmm. I think it's done well. We both, I think read it and kind of came away being like, yeah, this is done well, but like, I don't have any specific thing to call out. I just think it, I think it's a good example of being like, Hey, uh, so Greek people are real people. That's worth keeping in mind uh, when you play this and maybe don't lean into terrible, you know, stereotypes and tropes, et cetera. Um, and there's some good information about like if you wanted to basically take the entirety of Aegon and not reskin it, but just like have it be a different pantheon, like some things to think about. I, I just think in general they've done a good job. Yes, 100% agreed. Yeah. Cool. Any other wrap up thoughts on Aegon before I ask you to say what we're going to read next for next episode? Um, I mean, I feel like I've, I feel like we have pretty thoroughly hit this game. Um, there are things in it that I. Uh, there are things in it that are very inimitable to me. They're not inimitable. Oof. In, in it, mm-hmm. There are things in it that are um, the opposite of, of what I generally look for in a game when I'm going to play it. Um, and they are explained in really cool ways that makes me want to still play this game. And I think that's like, in some ways, the highest praise I could give something. 100%. Yeah. There are also things that I think are just kind of goofy and I don't care about, which is, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm very glad you picked this one. Um, it was, uh, I mean, it was the hardest one we've read so far, just literally in terms of like the amount of information here and trying to keep that all in my brain as I was going through it and like just, you know, have the baseline understanding enough to be able to do a a bit of a critical analysis. And I'm, I'm happy that I'm happy that I was forced to read this book in in this way. Honestly, um, because yeah, 
like I said, the first read through, I was like, I think I have an understanding of this, not enough to play it and not enough to talk about it, but like it was enough was there. And then going back into it to think about it specifically critically was like really helpful and making it really click for me. Awesome. Um, awesome. I, I also do think they could have, they, they could have just put one Island earlier on and it would have not broken up the flow that much and it would have been very helpful, but you know, whatever. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've thought about this a decent amount. I, f- I feel like even if they had kept it all the same, but like somewhere in the third or fourth, so third chapter being the trials chapter where they talk through contests and battles, or the fourth where it's like, okay, this is what you do between islands, somewhere in there being like, hey, maybe just like jump ahead to this one page where the first island starts just so you can see what an island is, I think could have been a helpful aside. But uh-huh. uh, besides that, I think in general, thumbs up for Aegon. Yeah, definitely. Cool. What's next? Oh, uh, for 4.1? For 4.1, our next episode. For 4.1? Can I click this link yet? I think we might be going over to Cannibal Halfling Gaming. Oh, fun. Oh, interesting title. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So, I don't know a ton about Cannibal Halfling Gaming. I've uh, listened to a couple of their podcasts, and and I have them on my RPG reader, or my RPG reader, my Feedly (laughs) RSS feed. Uh, you will, listener, you will understand why me saying RPG reader there makes sense momentarily. And, and I've been following them, and I think they're a, they're one of the more interesting, active blogs on, um, they do a lot of OSR stuff, um, just general tabletop stuff. They have, like, monthly sort of roundups of, like, Kickstarter projects and stuff like that. Just sort of like a, like a critical newsy site about role playing games. And, and I've been like impressed with a lot of their stuff. And I figured this one has, this, uh, this post that we're going to be reading came out, uh, like April 23rd of this year. Um, so that's going to make this both, I think, the first contemporary thing we're reading <laughs> and the first thing not written by a game designer for our theory stuff. Cool. That's interesting. I guess I don't know if Seamus is a, is also a game designer, but like not primarily known as a game designer at the very yeah. least. So yeah, we are going to be reading on being an RPG reader. Hey, that's uh, me. Uh, I, that's me. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, this is technically part of a series um, that I forget the specifics of it. I think there's a, I, or is that right? Um, it's been a few months since I read this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they had a they had another post about um, collecting role playing games, and then they have one about reading role playing games, um, and they're sort of like a, a series of articles that are just like, what is what are the actual differences here, right? Not the um, sort of understood <laughs> value propositions of these things, wherein obviously a role playing game is for playing. Um, if you just have a bunch of books and you don't actually play them, then like, what are you even doing? That's like a fake person, right? Uh, I can confirm. I am a fake person. <laughs> yes. Can confirm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't remember the, the specifics of the argument, so I'm excited to go back to them. But I do remember like it, it being a pretty solid, you know, pretty just a, number one. It's a pretty solid contemporary example of a post, the kind of discourse that is happening in uh, role playing game uh blogs specifically in in the 2020s um which is a thing we haven't really touched on 
and um, and a different perspective on what's important about these kinds of games that we're talking about, which uh, I remember being a, a, I appreciated at the time, and I'm, I'm excited to go back into it and like pick it apart a little more. Cool. And also, I yeah, I mean, obviously, I <laughs> remember remember popping the article open in my feedly and being like, oh, it's about BW. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Cool. I'm excited. Uh, I, uh, I I have liked everything I have seen from Cannibal Halfling Gaming. So I am I am happy to read more from them and also just maybe get people's eyes on on them because uh, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of folks talking about tabletop RPGs like this anymore in public forums. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It is all Discord and Twitter, right? 100%. Both deeply. Um, uh <laughs> deeply non uh like trackable <laughs> uh systems uh hard hard to have an archive of them yeah hundred uh, percent and yeah and that's I think I low key mentioned this on the podcast before but like that's one of the reasons I've gotten into OSR stuff so much in the last six months or a year is like. Because they're the people who are still writing blogs. Yeah, totally. And yeah, yeah. you like you don't have to like you know follow them on Twitter and see their fucking like weirdo opinions or the like attempts at going viral by dunking on some shit you just don't want to read or whatever. You just get to see the longer form stuff, and they've uh, you know they have enough of a uh, an ecosystem. It seems like in the OSR where like people are getting you know not not living money, but like pocket money worth of patrons to to just kind of talk about weird theories on reading rpgs or i mean i got a i got a handful of other osr stuff that we'll get into in the future on this show so i want to spoil anything but uh, there's a there's a there's a post by a osr person who's made a very cool um system or uh, uh oh, it's getting hot again so my brain is melting again um <laughs> There's literally a post from a designer um, that's just about a dream that they had um, that is like literally in my bookmarks to talk about on this show. Whoa. So yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting world out there of, of criticism, and we're um, the best at it. Uh, absolutely, we're the absolute best <laughs> at it. I'm very excited for next episode, uh, in which we will uh-huh. read "On Being an RPG Reader" uh, by Seamus Connolly on Cannibal Halfling Gaming. And yeah. uh, I think we're going to end the episode here. So, hey, B. What's up? Where uh, could people find you on the internet if they want, if they wanted to do that and you wanted them to do that? Number one, uh-huh. go, go listen to Island Demeter. It's, it's fun. Absolutely. Season two is still theoretically coming out at some point. Number two, I did this on the call before, before we started recording, but BW knows this. But now you too, listener, will. I got a new Twitter handle. Hell yeah. I got one that doesn't make me feel a mild amount of dysphoria when I say it out loud. We love this. We love to hear it. (laughs) I probably, within the next couple of weeks, and this will be months, months before uh, this even theoretically gets posted, um, I'm going to probably start following people again and and engaging with the Twitter. The Twitter. Um... (laughs) So I'm at Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Great. At B Gabriel. Mm-hmm. That's B like the kind with a stinger. Yep. 
Gabber like the musical genre, and then an EL at the end. There we go. We we got a little happy hardcore in here tonight, baby. <laughs> we do. Uh, it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, it can be Gabriel on Twitter, uh, where I may exist. It's but by the time that this goes up, there 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 will likely be a link in the description of this podcast um cool we'll see what about yeah you that's a great this is a, listen this is a great question uh, i knew you were about to try to avoid it and just end the show i absolutely but... love it when people <laughs> look at things i do on the internet um mm-hmm. so probably the best place to find me is the place i post the least uh which is my quote-unquote brand <laughs> instagram account um so you can go to instagram.com slash bakery slash workshop that's three words, all lowercase, all spelled out fully with no spaces in between. Instagram.com slash bakery slash workshop. And that's it. I think that's it. We're done. We did it. Episode 3.2. We did it. We're done. Uh, so thanks for listening to our podcast. Uh, we record it for you, the listener. And we'll, we'll see you next month for episode 4.1. Bye. Bye. Bye.